So did you know that 538 has a graph of Tom Cruise films? And no. well, it's, it's Tom Cruise and other actors, and they measure the actor's critical response, so how their movies are reviewed versus how they perform. And with Tom Cruise, apparently he's an incredibly consistent performer that not only is he critically well-liked, but his movies tend to be successful from a financial standpoint always, which is not always the case because there's a lot of actors who are really well-liked critically, but then their artsy-fartsy movies don't do as well at the box office. Whereas Tom Cruise, like, he's done it all, like, I mean, uh, what's that movie he did where he's like, I have no dick. Um, no, the, what? no, no, there, I swear there's a, is it? Yeah, it's there's born, a... it's born on the 4th of July. Oh, right. Have you seen that movie? Actually, no, that's a one Tom Cruise movie I have not seen. But it's like, so there's stuff like that where it's like right. typical Oscar-y movies about war and mutilation. Uh, and then, you know, the Mission Impossible movies, right. it, it seems like, like if you're Tom Cruise, you can't lose. Is that true for you as a fan? I think so. Yeah. Um, for sure. Uh, in one of the podcasts that I listened to, I think it was Christopher McQuarrie. He, he did, um, Jack Reacher and he was saying how Tom Cruise fought him on one of the scenes in the movie and so Tom Cruise at the end of the day said you know what you're the director we should do it your way but I'm Tom Cruise so I really want to do it my way so they did it both ways and then in the audience the um the what do you call it the test feedback audiences oh, yeah. the, the I... screener audiences uh-huh. in the test audiences they showed it both ways and the director's version scored higher and so Tom Cruise was like, all right, then I guess we're releasing it that way. So, so you know, it's like he's, he just wants to make a good movie at the end of the day. So for you, that that's exhibit A to Tom Cruise's humility as an actor? Yeah, I mean, he could push his weight around. He could be, he could just say, listen, I want to do it my way, you know, and he's been making movies long enough, so it's not just like he's a spoiled brat of a star. Like, he's been making movies... And he knows what he's talking about. But at the end of the day, he just wants to make a movie that as many people will like as possible. And if that means his idea is the one that doesn't get picked, eh, so be it. Hmm. Well, that is definitely a quality that we like in our romantic heroes, that's for <laughs> sure. So shall we start the show? Yeah. Let's start the show. Are we going to say it? or I, I was we... going to have an exhibit B for Tom Cruise's awesome. Oh, we'll do it after we, for after do, we introduce after the we show. Introduce yeah, the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. We, we are Necromancer. Necromancer. I'm She-Ra. I'm a rom-com fan. I'm Brett. I'm a horror fan. And together we watch both genres and then we turn those genres around. We reboot them. We make that rom-com a horror movie. We make that rom-com a horror... Or that, that I said that before. 
We make the horror a rom-com, and this week we are focused on our boy, Tom Cruise. That's right. So give me exhibit B okay. to his humility. So I worked with someone when I worked at Southwest, and he told me a story about how he had a dog when he lived in his apartment. I think it was in Philadelphia. I could be wrong mm-hmm. on that. I'm going to get a lot of details on this story wrong, because it's not my story. Um, he lived in an apartment, and the apartment was kind of like... More of a hippy-dippy type complex. Wherever, like a all co-op? Of, kind of like a co-op, I guess, but not really. It, um, it just, all the neighbors were very friendly with each other. And so he had this small little dog. And the dog would get out sometimes. But the neighbors all knew whose dog it was. So they would just either take the dog in or return the dog to the guy's apartment. And it was no big deal. So one day, this guy comes home. His dog isn't home. No big deal. He goes to his neighbor's apartment. He goes, hey, is my dog here? And the guy goes, no, I haven't seen your dog. So he goes, okay, that's a little weird. Usually the dog kind of sticks to one floor. But, all right, so he goes home, and as he's kind of getting ready to go look for his dog, there's a knock on the door. And I'll give you one guess who shows up with the dog. Is it motherfucking Tom Cruise? It's motherfucking Tom Cruise (laughs) shows up at the door with the dog. Mission Impossible theme music playing. Whoa. It turns out that this apartment building, they were doing the rap party for the firm in the basement of the apartment complex. Oh, so this is like early Tom Cruise. So this is pretty early Tom. He's still a star, but it's, it's pretty early Tom Cruise. Oh, I'm sure from the moment the moment that he tried out for something, there's some fat cat smoking cigars being like, this kid's gonna be something. He's gonna be a big star. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so this guy, Tom Cruise, just found a dog. This super megastar, Tom Cruise, found a dog wandering the apartment complex and took it upon himself to find the dog's owner. And then he just chilled with my coworker for a bit. And then he was like, hey, you want to come down to the rat party? And so my friend got, or my coworker got to go down and hang out with the firm. That's awesome. That's so cool. That is really cool. I mean, I have heard epic tales of Tom Cruise's kindness. Like, right. apparently, you've heard about the coconut cake, right? No. I've heard a bunch of stuff, but I've not. So apparently, Tom Cruise has a favorite a favorite cake, this white chocolate coconut bundt cake. Sure. And if Tom Cruise likes you, then he will send you the coconut cake. And apparently, Whoa. there are some people where he sends them a coconut cake every year for Whoa. Christmas or something. But that that is his deal. He wants to share this cake with everyone he loves. Damn, that makes me sad because I hate coconuts so much. But if Tom Cruise offered you his coconut cake... I would eat it. Oh, (laughs) I would eat it. I would force myself to eat every last crumb. Just knowing that it it came from from Tom Cruise. Yeah. So tell me, before we get into the movies, I'm really curious to know, how did Boy Meet Tom Cruise? Where did this love story begin? Uh, I, I don't, I just, Mission Impossible, probably. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love the Mission, I think the Mission Impossible franchise is the best action movie franchise, by far. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, I just, I just kept watching Tom Cruise movies, and I kept digging them, man. And I think Tom Cruise has an acting style that's not like 
any other acting style. Like, he's got a very cold, calculated style. But he's so polite. Yes, he is. <laughs> um, but his style is not, like, I don't, when I think of Tom Cruise, I don't think of, like, you know, super emotional and method acting and, like, he really gets into his roles. I think, like, he manipulates everything about his style to give the performance like he calibrates himself to to fine tune his little facial tics and his little deliveries oh he's a great face actor yeah. for sure oh yeah um yeah so i don't know i just it's really hard for me to watch a tom cruise movie that i don't like there's a few of them but I feel like, though, he's kind of got, for lack of a better description, he's got a little tiny inner Nicolas Cage that peeks out sometimes. Like, okay. like he, like, Tom Cruise can play it restrained, but, like, he has, I like, I can only describe it as manic energy oh, that, yeah. like, comes out sometimes where you're like, this guy's fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the Oprah jumping on the couch. Yes, but crazy. I, it, that kind of crazy, but it, and then also inspiration for Patrick Bateman and American Psycho right. crazy, but man, I, I was watching, I forget, I think it might've been night and day. And I was like, man, like how much better would American Psycho have been if we could have actually gotten Tom Cruise? <laughs> like, I mean, but yeah, it seems that been... at that point in his career, a heel turn, like, like he did in collateral, he just. I, I don't think he would have done that. Um, right. But, but yeah, I, I like that man, like that manic energy that pops out of him sometimes. I actually love it. I think it, it's yeah. part of what makes him appealing. I don't think there's a better actor in terms of like having this kind of kinetic exposition delivery, which is basically like all the mission impossibles are him on the move delivering exposition. <laughs> Oh, so like how Game of Thrones like to do sex position where they would explain the plot while in whorehouses for Mission Impossible and Tom Cruise, it's while doing action scenes and running. Yes. He's explaining the plot. Pretty much. I like that better than than sex position. <laughs> I've never. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean it's 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 a thing that I I haven't seen in that many other shows, but that show in particular, whenever they had like political machinations or things that they thought would be boring to describe otherwise, right. they would set it in a whorehouse. And then drape a bunch of female bodies around the, you know, I mean, sure. I guess if you're doing a court intrigue type high fantasy, maybe that works. But I would much rather have Tom Cruise running and things going boom, boom. Yeah. While he tells us <laughs> how we're going to find the Zephyr. <laughs> um, question. So, so you found yourself falling in love with Tom Cruise. Oh, but, big time. But when did you know you loved him? Uh, I think it was Mission Impossible 3. <laughs> <laughs> so so by the third one, you were like, yeah. I love this man. <laughs> yeah. I will watch any Tom Cruise movie. Yeah. Uh, I think that's... Mission Impossible 3 was kind of peak everyone hating Tom Cruise because of his Scientology slash Oprah slash going crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. 
And man, that movie is so freaking awesome that I just... Do you think he was fighting to prove himself with that movie after all the bad press? I don't think he's ever been fighting to prove himself. I think he's he's just kind of... <laughs> he steamrolled right past that. You know what I mean? Right, like right. He, like, there was no acknowledgement of it. There was no kind of, like, overcompensation of it. He just went right back to work and just plowed right through that whole controversy. I like the celebrities that weather their scandals by just going out and doing great work. So it's like, yeah. there's really nothing to say. Like, I think uh, Angelina and Jolie... And, and Brad Pitt did that with Mr. and Mrs. Smith, where oh, right. instead of the conversation being completely dominated by the scandal, it really then ultimately just became about their work and then the continuous work they did. Like, yeah. That's the best way to, to make people forget <laughs> when you've done things <laughs> that make them upset is just make a movie that everyone loves. Yeah. Did you see Mr. and Mrs. Smith? I haven't seen it yet. I've seen the old version right. uh, done by Alfred Hitchcock, which is hilarious. I, I I wouldn't watch Mr. and Mrs. Smith simply because it's really rated highly among like the top lists of rom-coms. I would say it's very much along the lines of Night and Day in terms of like... Action it's a movie rom-com. that should just be average, but it kind of elevates itself enough to be really fun. And really good and just you know just a nice charming movie yeah speaking yeah. of which should we should we get into night and day yeah you want to start off with let's, night and day let's start off with night and day so this sure. is um this is one of the only movies we've done where you saw the rom-com twice before yeah. i've seen it so this is the very first time i saw night and day but as a as a tom cruise completionist you were, were already there. Did you see it? You said you saw it in theaters? Oh, yeah. I definitely saw it in theaters. And then I think one day we were just, me and my dad were flipping through channels on like HBO or something. And I saw Night and Day. I was like, oh, Night and Day. That movie's pretty good. And my dad was like, all right. Did he like, like it? Settled on it. Um, my dad does not like movies. <laughs> <laughs> he li- The only two movies he likes are, or the only two genres he likes are westerns and sci-fi monster movies and when i say sci-fi i mean like the the blob no like the channel sci-fi oh so like so like the giant crotch versus mega octopus and stuff like that Um, (laughs) interesting and so those are pretty much the only two kinds of movies that he likes uh but from what i remember i think he thought it was all right which I, is like a compliment, you know what I mean? From my dad, it's a compliment. Yeah, if he goes if like, he, it's all right. If he says it's all right, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, I I feel like, um, well, we'll talk about it more later, but if you're a Western fan, Collateral is kind of Western adjacent. Yeah, it's got that sort of Western-y machismo kind of vibe. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Especially, especially the ending, but, but yeah. we'll get to that. Man, Night and Day though, I really this movie surprised me so much. Like I was I was kind of worried that it would end up being like Leap Year. Right. Where like I misremembered Leap Year and and how 
how much I don't want to say leap year was terrible, even though that's what I really want to say. Um, <laughs> what I would say instead is that a lot of the elements that I would have wanted to work just didn't work. Right. Um, leap year was average. It was an average. It was movie. an average movie. And and like I've said before, with with the movies that we've watched, where maybe I haven't necessarily liked them. It just feels like they missed opportunities. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Night and Day, they took every opportunity they had. They oh, used yeah. it. They sold it. They I'm, had so much fun with this script. Oh, yeah. And they had... Did they have like an endless budget or something? Because well, the movie yeah, looks Tom great. Uh, Tom Cruise apparently took a huge pay cut to do this movie. Oh, really? Yeah. And so that kind of helps, I guess. That That's interesting. Um, I, wonder, I wonder what his pay comparative to Cameron Diaz was since pay disparities become a conversation (laughs) these days. Um, But yeah, like the movie looks great. Um, Mm -hmm. They, yeah, James Mangold. I forgot he directed it and he's, what has he done before? uh, He did walk the line and he did Logan. Walk the line has a good romance in it too. Yeah. 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 Classic. June Carter. <laughs> June Carter, uh, Johnny Cash. Yes. Country romance. But yeah, I mean, he, he he sold me on, on the romance element of it. I mean, even though, like, again, like, I don't know why I keep coming back to Leap Year, because I guess that was our other actor episode that right. we did. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas, like, I mean, like, the amount of, like, heat in the movie, like, this is a way that people rate romance novels like it's not we're not approaching the steamy level where there's like sex in the movie like they share like two kisses but they they this movie did a much better job when it came to selling me on like why are these two characters going to be together right like what what works with them uh before i i we get into it further should we do a summary yeah let's go for it uh so night and day Roy Miller is shopping around a Kentucky airport when he spots June Havens, a mechanic who is flying home to Boston. She bumps into him once before security and then bumps into him again after security. Both times, he is super polite and charming. June tries boarding an earlier flight to Boston, the same one Roy is on, but she's told it is full. However, behind the scenes, spy people are watching the two on security cameras and pull some strings to let June fly on an earlier flight. How mysterious. On the flight, the two continue to chat and even flirt. But then June spills a drink on herself and goes to the bathroom. And then all the other passengers, and there's only a few, but all the other passengers and even crew turn on Roy, attempting to subdue him. Roy kills everyone on the plane, including one of the pilots who accidentally shoots the other pilot. You know, just one of those things. June comes out of the bathroom, and Roy gently breaks the news to her that he has to land the plane. At first, she thinks he's joking, but quickly finds out he's not. (laughs) After an emergency crash landing, Roy gives her a sedative and warns her to stay out of vehicles and to stay away from people pretending to be government agents who tell her to keep uh, who tell her they will keep her safe and secure. June wakes up to some notes and a very well-cooked breakfast. She goes to shop for bridesmaid dresses with her sister for the wedding on Saturday, uh, her sister's wedding, but is pulled aside by some government people who want to know more about Roy. 
Despite his warning, she gets into the car with them, and they promise to keep her safe and secure. That's what he warned her about. He warned her they would say that if they were going to kill her. So the moment she starts to get suspicious, boom, someone attacks the convoy. It's Roy. That's right, baby. Uh, (laughs) So all the men in the car die, and June has to drive from the backseat while Roy is on top of the car, jumping from car to car, back on top of the car while dispatching other agents. Finally, they stop the car, and Roy is killing the rest of the bad guys, and June runs to Rodney, her ex-boyfriend, almost fiancé, and goes to a restaurant where she explains all the craziness that just happened, and he thinks she's just stressed about the wedding. Okay, can I just say, I knew Rodney was not going to help us at all, because he will be immediately recognizable to any Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans as Riley Buffy's stupid college boyfriend. Lucas. <laughs> Me and my wife have a running joke about Lucas because uh, he's such a doof in the show, and then Lucas is such a doofy name. Uh, but yeah, when I found out it was Lucas who was Rodney, I was like, You recognized him too? Well, no, I didn't until after, but I was like, Sonia, guess who's in this movie? Lucas! <laughs> Uh, so, um, June is having a sort of lunch dinner with, with Rodney and then enter Roy, who gets along with Rodney quite well until he snaps and takes June hostage, begging Rodney not to do anything. But of course, as they go out to the car, Rodney follows and Roy shoots him in the leg, but a clean shot, probably the best thing that'll happen to him all movie. Uh, in the car, Roy tells June she is now on camera being hostage and that will help her, but she freaks out and asks to be let go. So they go to a parking garage. He offers to let her go and that her chances are better with him. And I love that part. With me, without me. With me, without yeah, me. Yeah, that it's was so a, great. That was a great Tom Cruise yeah. joke. Like perfect again for his manic energy. Right, yeah. It's very manic energy and his sort of like very well calibrated line deliveries where it's just like so rehearsed to the point where it's so fine tuned and just spot on. Like, ah, oh, I love it. Uh, so she reluctantly agrees to tag by his side. Next, they go to a warehouse to meet up with Simon, a crazy inventor guy who invented some crazy thing. At the warehouse, they are attacked and even kidnapped. Before captured, though, Roy once again drugs June. Ugh, that drugging. During <laughs> We're going to talk about that, but I'll <laughs> right. until then. During her drugged-out haze, June sees Roy swinging upside down. And then he's free, and then they're on a plane, and then it's crashing, and then they're on a boat, and then they're on an island, and he's coming out of the water with fish. She freaks out and walks away grabbing her bag, first observing a weird address on Roy's phone, but then trying to take a call from her sister. When she takes the call, though, their location is tracked, and quickly, or after a quick little play fight, they are attacked by more bad guys. June this time asked to be knocked out instead of having it done to her against her will because she doesn't want to get in this dinky little escape helicopter that Roy has. And so Roy obliges. She's knocked out. Boom. She wakes up on a train in the Alps. What? Crazy. (laughs) So then she goes to the dining cart where she thinks she meets Simon, the man Roy is after. But oh no, it is not Simon. It's an assassin. That's right. So she tries to escape and ends up in the kitchen car only to be attacked by the assassin. Roy comes to save her, but he is incapacitated by the man. And using a trick Roy just taught her, June escapes the assassin's hold, accidentally stabbing him. 
And then before he sort of terminates her by pulling the knife out and stabbing her. He did her. have a very T-1000 right. attitude. <laughs> uh, so before he terminates her, Roy kicks him out of the window and he's hit by the train. So now they're in Europe and June follows Roy to this secret meeting. I'm, I got to skip along because I'm, I'm spending way too much time on this. But I want to hit all those little details. Uh-huh. So now they're in Europe. <laughs> June follows Roy to a secret meeting. Oh, Gail Godot's in this oh, movie. Oh, Wonder Woman. Yeah. Crazy, right? Yeah. Every Okay, by the way, everyone is in this movie. Like, I was yeah. like, where's the scene Bretson? <laughs> uh, so June follows Roy to a secret meeting where she learns Roy is planning on selling this perpetual battery device to the bad guy. And then she meets up with Roy's old boss and ex-partner who tell her that Roy is, in fact, a bad guy. What? But that's what he warned her they would say. I know. So she doesn't know what to do, so June turns him in, and Roy makes a daring escape, and then it's presumed that he's dead, and June is let go, but she has a funny feeling something isn't right. So she remembers that mysterious address from before on the island, and she goes to visit. There, she meets an older couple who know nothing about Roy Miller, but they do know something about Matt Knight, who was killed overseas saving his comrades, and what Matt Knight is Roy Miller crazy so june lures the bad guys out and willingly gets herself captured she gets knocked out again she wakes up again she's in spain she's given a true serum where she admits to knowing absolutely nothing except the fact that whenever there's bad guys around roy is always close by so roy's ex-partner has simon and is going to sell him to the bad guys but just as roy is about to make a daring rescue he hears june talking to the baddies so Roy instead saves her, and she is forced to tag along as they have to then go and save Simon. After an exciting car-slash-motorcycle chase in the middle of the running with the bulls, Roy and June work together as a team to dispatch more of the bad guys, and all that's left is saving Simon. Roy gives his ex-partner the battery in exchange for Simon's life, but then Simon foolishly and innocently lets out that he can make another bad idea. The ex-partner goes to shoot him, but Roy takes the bullet instead. The partner escapes, but is quickly exploded by the battery because it's unstable. Whoopsies. <laughs> the batter, or the government then takes Roy into custody, and after some bullet surgery, they talk to him and tell him that he has to forget June, that he's their property, he's got to be a spy forever, and that they will keep him safe and secure. Oh, no, that means they're going to kill him. You're in trouble. So then a nurse comes in and gives Roy a pill, and he takes the pill, but then what? The pill is a knockout drug, and the nurse is June. Nurse June rescues Roy, who wakes up, and they are south of the border, and June tells him that she's driving to Cape Horn, which is where she's always dreamed of going, and that his chances of survival are much better with her than without her. With her? Without her. Such I a liked, great little moment. I liked that callback. <laughs> yeah, such a great callback. Uh, and then they just ride off into the sunset happily ever after. But did it really make up for all the times he drugged her? Yes. And put on clothes without her consent? Yes, because he puts she her did in it a to bikini. Him. She did it to him. She put him in swim trunks. <laughs> it's uh it's equal opportunity abduction. Creeping. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I you know, this is this episode I feel like could be abduction tropes part two because both right. night and day and collateral are hostage or abduction movies. And I I definitely feel like like in 2020 we're looking back at movies like this and seeing it as like, okay, well the abduction trope isn't cute anymore. Yeah, but I think it's her not- reaction to it is 
like she has an appropriate reaction to it where he's like what's the big deal i put you in a bikini and she's like no that's a big deal and she runs away and then she kind of is forced to come back and then there's some flirting and i mean you know yes she she maybe forgives him a little too fast but her reaction to it is kind of like no that's not okay that's true like i definitely feel like i mean we're in a continuum and we're evolving like if this movie had been made in the 80s, probably with Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn, right. uh, Goldie Hawn probably wouldn't have reacted, like would have accepted more quickly yeah. the <laughs> offenses <laughs> done onto her instead of complaining, much like she does when she finds out that he basically gaslit her in Overboard. Right. Um, Whereas I feel like in Night night and Day, like, you're right, like, she does call him out on it, and she says, like, I don't want to be knocked out, or I do actually want to be knocked out for this. For myself, I feel like if Tom Cruise asked me to trust him in a hostage situation, I probably would. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's very convincing. And if Tom Cruise wanted to jump out of an airplane to safety... I would demand that he knock me out before right. we did that. Like there, there's definitely some things that that I would want to be knocked out for. Also, I I think that the um, the sequence where she's in and out of consciousness just plays really well cinematically. Yeah, where it's just all these flashes of the trouble that they get into. Right. I especially liked when he was you know, almost like lethal weapon style, hanging upside down yeah. from the chain and swinging. <laughs> and like right away, he's like, don't worry, I'm going to get us out of this. Like there's absolutely, um, one of the big things that I don't like in action movies is when characters are pretty much bulletproof. Mm-hmm. But this movie is such a fun spin on that, that like the fact that Tom Cruise is never in danger. But he does get shot in the end. Yeah, but he's never really in danger. Um, the fact that they kind of make Tom Cruise a Sakamoto. Oh, I was I wrote that in my fucking notes. I wrote Sakamoto again. Again, yeah, Sakamoto. So if anyone's listening who's just joining us, Sakamoto is a an anime about a man who a Japanese high school student who is excessively competent at everything that he does. Um, to a comedic level and so the fact that tom cruise is just so competent at everything but they kind of play that up as a joke and are constantly poking fun at it and playing on those tropes but i also feel like the key to the as i'm gonna call it from from here on out the sakamoto hero is not only is he excessively competent He's humble. Right. He doesn't call attention to himself, and he's incredibly polite. Like one of the things I felt like they did really well is while while Tom Cruise is being excessively competent, he's also complimenting Cameron Diaz. Oh he's like, yeah. Oh, you're really good at this. Like when she's driving from the back seat and like trying. Yeah. Like, Your timing with that door was sublime. I love that line. Yeah, like he he's really like not only is he Sakamoto, but he is very supportive. Yeah. And then he does something important that Blue Kiss slash um, Rodney does not do which is he listens yes he pays it i mean maybe that's because he is a agent and it's his job to spy on people and listen to them 
So he's a much better active listener than some, but he pays attention to what June says. He knows about her dreams, her desires, about her sister's wedding. Yeah. Yeah, like right away from the very beginning, he's, um, he's, he's very competent with all of that stuff um yeah it's very nice i i also noticed that even though they put cameron diaz in a bikini in there's something about mary there's a few different fan service like what i would refer to as like fan service scenes where it's like oh look how hot cameron diaz is right whereas this movie I think is very clearly all about how hot Tom Cruise is. Right. Because there's two scenes, like, I, I appreciate it because it's like, I don't know, as as a female movie watcher, it's like you just get exhausted by all the cliche depictions of how hot the female is. For it to be about how hot Tom Cruise is is kind of a refreshing change. But there's two scenes. There's when he takes off his shirt to look at the bullet that's in his like abs. Like he literally oh, like yeah. they like the plane has just crashed and he like takes off his shirt and then flexes and is like, <laughs> Oh yeah, I got a bullet here, but I'll dig it out. <laughs> like it's he a just very flexes it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very it's very manly. And then the other <laughs> the other scene when he's coming out of the water right. like a bond girl yeah i was gonna say the <laughs> ursula andrews is that her name the ursula andrews I, moment I, I guess so yeah he, doctor now he had a he definitely had an ursula andrews moment yeah. um and but yeah like it just reminded me that it's like like at no point were there any scenes like that for cameron diaz like even like charlie's angels had like right. more female fan service but I, I liked the refreshing change that it was like, oh, yeah, Tom Cruise, he's a hunk. Right. <laughs> Although, like, I, physically, Tom Cruise doesn't do as much for me. But I I really, like, yeah, I, I love a good Sakamoto hero. Although grumpy heroes are, are my favorite by far. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the reluctant sort of dread type hero. The hero who doesn't want to do it but is so miserable that, he does do it anyway, but it just makes him more miserable. And uh, yeah, has Tom Cruise ever played a grumpy hero? I don't know. That's a good question. I'd have to think about it, but um, I don't know. I can't think of one off the top of my head. I guess not. I mean, is he is he grumpy in Jerry Maguire? I, <laughs> I was so scared that you were going to pick Jerry Maguire for the rom-com. I hate that movie so much. Well, you convinced me that it's not a rom-com. It's, I don't know. I know I would, I think it's more of a rom-com than you think it is, I think. Really? Yeah. I thought that it was supposed to be depressed. Well, I've never seen Jerry Maguire. I just know about the um, the Mountain of Jeremy. J- right, the, the VHS. Ma- the VHS Mountain of Jerry's the, that everything is terrible yeah. is making. Yeah. And then also the, the the You Complete Me line. Right, yeah. That was the only thing that or made Or you me- had me at hello. Oh, or... wait, oh, that yeah. that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. It, are both of those lines from that movie? I can't remember. It's such a bad movie. <laughs> well, you you avoided that, and and in any case, I I wouldn't have it any other other way because Night and Day was was so much fun. Yeah. Um, I like also that they gave Cameron Diaz a little solo action scene. 
Yeah. Where in the train she got to to fight off the the guy for a while before Tom Cruise got there. Right. Um, and then you know I. I'd seen from the poster the, um, as I like to call it, cowgirl motorcycle mm-hmm. co-op scene. Yeah. Uh, and I and I thought it was going to piss me off when I saw it, where I was like, ugh, this is like so contrived. But I thought it was actually really cute. Right. Like, and for, for people who are confused by my terminology, it's where Cameron Diaz climbs on top of Tom Cruise and she is facing him, shooting the enemies behind them as they're riding through Plampoma on a motorcycle. And it's it's a really well shot scene. Right. And it's also great because like you said, um, Tom Cruise is telling her what to do. He's like, get out the guns. And she's like, okay. And then he's like, she's like, okay, what next? He's like, shoot them. And he sort of pivots her around so that she's facing the other way. And he's basically telling her like, you can do this, take charge, shoot the bad guys, I need your help. So it's like a really cool little teammate moment where they get to do it together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like that's that's something where like I feel like if it's going to be an action rom-com, I'd like to see something similar to what they try to do in Night and Day where like it seems like kind of like the first act and a half, she's just screaming and hiding right. behind Tom Cruise. Because she's a normal person right. and she's shocked. And I, I like the scene where she tells him, can you just stop yeah. shooting people? And then he just keeps shooting people. Yeah, he's like, okay, I'm going to go talk to these people. Well, I'm going to go kill them. But. And he, 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 he sells that line in like right. a really glib way where yeah. like he's just super amused. Like he's oh, so, yeah. he's, he's like, like not only, like I feel like he conveys just the, um, the the easiness of someone who's been doing this for a long time right like for him night and day probably as work was like oh simple so yeah. he's like yeah I'm, a, I'm an old hat at this um but then by the end of the movie um when she's fallen in love with him rather than her continuing to cower behind him she's you know she's a co they're, they're running co-op they're they're yeah. doing it together uh, and, and I really, I liked that. Like I, I appreciate a movie that's willing to dole out the action equally to the, to the couples. And I guess that's why people probably found Mr. And Mrs. Smith so appealing too. Right. Where it's like more egalitarian when it comes to who gets to be responsible for the action. Yeah. Uh, they're both pretty badass in that movie. But I also like how, um, there's also little sort of moments like, um, beginning of the movie when she runs into the bullets he's like okay on three and one and then she runs into the bullets and then comes back and he's like what are you doing she's like i panicked he's like what what number works best for you she's like no three's good he's like okay one two three go but then later he walks into the bullets on purpose to go kiss her and it's like a good little mirroring kind of evolution yeah I loved that scene. <laughs> I I was embarrassed at myself for how much I loved that scene. But here's here's why I loved the second kiss so much because there's a first right. Well, I actually liked the first kiss too because rather than him kissing her, she after talk after like psyching herself up in the bathroom mirror, she basically walks up to him mm-hmm. and just plants a smacker on him. Um, and, and I liked, I liked that kind of, that initiative 
on the heroine's part. But then in the second kiss scene, she's still... I, I mean, well, both Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz are really funny in this movie. But, right. I mean, she in particular, I think, is is really bringing the comedy oh, to, yeah. the, to the ROM. Um, but she's still on the truth serum. Right. And so she's like, you don't seem happy to <laughs> yeah. see me. And she's all high. And he literally, he puts down his work. Right. Which is, I mean, maybe that's what appealed to me so much <laughs> is the idea like, Oh, he's going to set work aside for a moment. He puts down the work of shooting bad guys, walks up to her, and then gives her a big old kiss. Uh, I just, I don't know. I liked that, like, where it's like, not only is uh, Roy an amazing listener, he cooks omelets, he cares, he lies but he does it to protect her and make right. sure she get to her sister's wedding on time yeah um but he's still willing to make time for some romance even when he were in the middle of shooting bad guys <laughs> it's a great scene it's all the little callbacks and moments like that i just love how this movie is it's not like it's self-aware without being meta Right. You know, like it's having fun with the genre and it's playing up on the tropes, but it's not really being meta in the same way that like Cabin in the Woods is meta or True Lies is meta. Right, right. Where they're kind of like winking at you as they're doing all this stuff. Yeah. So that's a really hard thing to pull off is like the self-aware without being meta genre or style of of like spoof do you think it's because movies like cabin in the woods are also kind of deeply cynical in their worldview whereas this is a little bit more happy poppy could be i don't know i haven't really thought about the the worldviewness of <laughs> of cabin in the woods in a while it's been a while since i've seen that one um yeah, I guess it is kind of a downer, right? I mean, it, <laughs> it I, is kind of. A... Oh, I definitely think we should do a bummer endings episode. Right. I don't know if we you would choose that one specifically, but I oh man, like like bummer endings in in rom coms and horror is something that I I have real mixed feelings about right. because yeah, for me it tends to to indicate a kind of cynical worldview where it's like. I'm just going to piss on a happy ending because that's the more artistic mm. thing to do. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. But this movie is fun. And as we kind of start to transition into Collateral, mm-hmm. both of these movies are about someday. They are about someday. Which I, th- I, d- I would have never have put that together unless I watched them back to back. Oh, you know what else I wouldn't have put together if I watched them back to back is that I think... You know, um, never mind that, but um, uh, I was about to go on a tangent. Um, (laughs) But I think that Tom Cruise, his perfect movie soulmate is a great driver. Like, he does the stunts, he does the pew-pews, and the driver does the driving, and it's like, June is a car person, Mm -hmm. Max is a car person, I think that Tom Cruise is attracted to car people. And apparently Cameron Diaz is an actual car person. So her and Tom Cruise did a a lot of their own driving and stunts. Yeah. Oh, really? That's cool. I could see, I could see Cameron being about that. Right. That's awesome. 
So before we transition, uh, who would you kill from this movie? Uh, good question. Mm, I mean, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a big Paul Dano fan, to be honest. <laughs> I kind of agree with you. Yeah. Uh, there's one movie I saw him in that I can't remember what it was, but there's one movie I saw him in that I liked him. But uh, for the most part, there's something about him that always drives me nuts. Is it his really little mouth? No. I don't know. Maybe. He has a very small mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I try not to think about it (laughs) because I don't want to overanalyze my hatred of Paul Dano. Does it have to do with uh, there will be blood? It could be, yeah. He is like just a a despicable person in that movie. (laughs) Uh, Such a douchebag. But, um... Yeah, that probably is one of the first movies that I really recognized him in and saw him in. So that could just be that that role tainted him as an actor for the rest of... Maybe. Yeah. But I'd say Paul Dano. Yeah, I'm kind of tempted to kill Paul Dano too because I I don't know. He just didn't seem like he really added that much to the movie except explaining the MacGuffin, which is the battery. He created the battery that can power a small city. Right. Um, But yeah, other other than that, yeah, I I almost want to say Peter Sarsgaard, but he's doing great work. Yeah. Um, He's kind of a thankless role in that that movie. He doesn't have too much to work with. It's such a thankless role. But but he's a bad guy. He's a good bad guy. What did you think, before we get into the pitches, what did you think of the scene where Peter Sarsgaard is sitting on the train, he blows on the Uh, window, it reveals a a finger-drawn circle, he looks through the circle, in the crowd is Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is looking at Peter Sarsgaard, and then the crowd covers Tom Cruise, and he's gone. <laughs> I I was shaking my head that whole scene, and I was like, what are you doing? But then, then Sarsgaard sold it for me when he goes, when he goes, uh, oh, Miller, always with the classics, or something like that. And I was like, all right, you got me back. You got me back. I paused that scene and I called Doug over and I was like, you have to watch this. <laughs> it's, uh, that's maybe the one little bit of meta, meta-ness in that movie where it's just like, it's a little too on the nose. <laughs> it was, but, uh, it was so contrived, but yeah. it made me laugh so hard. It was, uh, oh, Miller, always with the classics. <laughs> always a fan of the classics. I think that's what he says. So I'm curious, how did you horrify this? Uh, actually, I just realized I didn't pick titles for these movies, so I'm, I had to cop out on that aspect. But I, I, I big time copped out on my horrorization of this movie. Ooh, double down on romance? My horror version of this movie is basically going to be beat for beat what this movie is only I turned all of the characters into classic universal horror movie monsters. <laughs> oh! So I made sort of like a is, rom-com spy thriller, but with universal horror movie monsters. It's a monster mash? Yes. <laughs> Although I was thinking about it, and I was thinking if you really wanted to do a serious sort of spy thriller and make this movie, but do it sort of... Of serious thriller version wouldn't that just be north by northwest oh yeah totally for sure right? totally yeah um 
so yeah but uh my version of this movie is gonna open on june buying a very rare and specific flower and then she goes to a cemetery and just as she's about to put flowers on the grave of her husband she notices something weird going on and i don't know what those places are called but you know like what cemeteries have those like mausoleums yeah like a mausoleum those encapsulated tombs Mm -hmm. um and so she goes to the mausoleum and she sees like a cult walking inside so her curiosity gets the better of her of course and she she sneaks inside and she watches as this cult this cult leader puts these two neck bolts on a corpse and the corpse is reanimated but then the head of the corpse explodes and so as it explodes she screams and then the cult looks over and corners her and just as they're about to kill her who shows up but lestat Played by Tom Cruise? Played by Tom Cruise. Interview with the Vampire. And we'll talk about that movie in just Uh, a minute. Yes. (laughs) We'll talk about that movie in just a minute um, as we go into why I didn't pick it for for the horror version. But Lestat comes in and kills everyone. And then just as he's about to kill the cult leader, he's like, what? A clone? And then he kills the cult leader. So like, ooh, clone stuff going on. But then just as he's about to kill June, because he can't leave any witnesses behind, he sees the flowers and something about the flowers makes him take pity on her. So he hypnotizes her, which is the same thing as drugging her, right? So he hypnotizes her and tells her to be cautious because she's probably going to be watched for the next couple of days or so. So then June wakes up and she goes about her business, but she can't help shake this feeling that she's being watched. And so she's on the street and she's like, oh, I think I'm being watched. So she ducks into a church and then she goes to the holy water. You know how you're supposed to do that thing in a church where you put your hand in the holy water and make the cross? Right. Well, she puts her hand in the holy water, but then she, like, splashes it behind her. And then, psh, oh, a face emerges in the in midair. And it's, what? The Invisible Man? Oh! What? That creep? Yeah. So the Invisible Man's been watching her. So then he, the Invisible Man kind of gets dressed and, you know, puts his bandages on. And he's like... He's giving her the lowdown, which is basically that Lestat and the Invisible Man used to work for, you know, the government agency that's like, what's... um. So this is like League of Extraordinary yes, Gentlemen. Yes, exactly. They, they worked for the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and uh, they used to be partners, and Lestat is a bad guy, and he's trying to harness the power of Dr. Frankenstein to create an undead army. Oh. And so then she's like, why did he let me live? And, and the Invisible Man's like, that's what you're gonna tell me what and so he's like gonna torture june into being like what makes you so special but just as he's about to torture her lestat shows up in the church and you know invisible man can be like i thought i was safe here in the church and lestat's like no actually i'm quite fond of crosses which is a callback (laughs) to interview uh so then lestat and the invisible man have a fight uh, like a fight and it could be cool because like invisible man could take off his bandages for his arms or Mm -hmm. something and then like you know, you could have a cool fight where he can't see his arms, but because he's a vampire, he can, like, have super senses, all this cool stuff. I'm loving it. So, June runs away, and she goes to her work party, uh, and she's like, you guys, I'm being followed by vampires and invisible people. And then Lestat shows up and sort of, like, Wizard of Oz is it, where he's like, oh, I'm a crazy, you know, like, I'm a crazy vampire man, and everyone runs away screaming. <laughs> so instead of him kidnapping her, he basically scares everyone else away. Uh, so Lestat and June team up. They go to a warehouse where they are attacked by a bunch of werewolves. 
they're kidnapped and they escape in the same kind of gimmicky way where he hypnosis is June and then there's like gimmicks about them escaping. And then they go to Transylvania and there they find Dr. Frankenstein, the real one this time, uh, not a clone. And June does something with a candle where it's like maybe she makes fire appear out of midair. And it's kind of the reference to this movie where she's like, my dad wanted boys where she's maybe she's like my mom wanted witches (laughs) and so june follows lestat and he's gonna sell the bolts the the frankenstein bolts to the wolfman who's the leader of the werewolves uh june is picked up by the invisible man and the phantom of the opera who's like the phantom of the government agency oh yeah so june sells out lestat but he escapes uh then june goes back home but she can't shake this feeling that something's wrong so she goes to the cemetery where this all sort of started and then she's walking around and she notices one of the mausoleums says lestat on it what? so then she goes inside and she notices it's lestat's wife and then she notices at the grave of lestat are the same kind of flowers that lestat brings his wife every year so it's like oh that's oh. why he let her live so then june goes to a i don't know i'm this is all right but june goes to like a dog pound or something because she's got to willingly get herself caught by the werewolves and so she gets caught and then she wakes up in a labyrinth and then the invisible man is going to sell frankenstein to the wolfman but lestat shows up and rescues june and then there's the running of the minotaurs what (laughs) (laughs) and then june has to, like, use magic. So now she's, like, kind of got full-blown witch magic. Her magic was awakened. Right, because now she's, like, in love with Lestat. And they're, they're, at this point, it's the her shooting the guns on the cowboy mm-hmm. motorcycle. But moment. shooting spells. Right, but shooting spells, like Scarlet Witch style. Uh, and then IMF, are the minotaurs run over the wolfman, just like the, cow, the bulls run over the bad guy in this movie. Uh, the Invisible Man takes the bolts from Frankenstein and choose, tries to shoot him with a silver bullet, but Lestat jumps in front of him. And then the Invisible Man takes the bolts into an airplane and goes into the sky. And, of course, it's a stormy night, right? Oh, shit. And then shit. because they're the bolts, the Frankenstein bolts, the plane gets hit by lightning and explodes. So the Invisible Man gets his comeuppance. And then the Phantom of the government agency saves Lestat. But then he threatens Lestat, right? Like, safe and secure. So then a nurse comes in and hypnotizes Lestat. And the nurse, of course, is June. And then they escape and happily ever after. So like I said, beat for beat, same exact movie. I just replaced all the characters with (laughs) monsters. I approve. I approve. I, I I like the journey of the Lestat character in Anne Rice's novels. I mean, I wasn't a big fan of Queen of the Damned. Ooh, that um, movie is... I don't know about the book, but that movie is rough. It's problematic. In the books, Lestat is kind of just this, like, amoral, bisexual superstar. Right. Who, I mean, he's kind of an anti-hero. Um, yeah. Whereas they made him more, I feel like, explicitly a hero in Queen of the Damned, where he's like, I'm bad. Yeah, he got I'm venomed. Not, I'm not that bad. Right? <laughs> like, oh yeah, because Venom's a bad guy Venom too. Venom is totally a bad guy. And then he became so popular that they're like, ah, well, I guess we kind of got to make him a good guy. So then yeah. are they going to do that with Carnage? 
I don't know if you can do that with Carnage. I hope not, because I Carn- the Carnage backstory is one of my favorites. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and you really, when the person in the symbiote suit is a criminal, it's right. kind of hard to, like, then make it a hero. Um, but yeah, no, they, they did, they did Venom, they did Venom him in that movie. Um, but yeah, I, I, so you were about to, to say, why not interview? Uh, well, we can get into that. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll get, we can get into that in, in the end, I guess. Um, but, uh, should I do mine? Yeah, I can't wait to hear it. So mine is similar to yours in that I I I picked up a lot of the same beats, right. but um, maybe I also am not a Paul Dano fan because I combined June and his character oh, okay. into one person. Yeah. So I was like, Smart ah, move. we don't we don't need two different people for Tom Cruise to target slash save. Right. Um, one is enough, and then. I decided for the title to just as night and day is the name of like a classic song. I named this movie "The Night Has a Thousand Eyes," okay. which is who sings that? Um, it, it's like an it's like an old standard. Gotcha. Um, but it but yeah, I just I just was like also, why do they call this movie Night and Day? <laughs> Well, because his real name is Night, and she's June Day. No, she's not June Day. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know it drives name, me nuts. Her last name is Haven. Yeah, why is this movie called Night and Day? Her name should be Day. If her name was Day, I would be totally fine with it. But instead, it's just like, oh, you know, because Night and Day. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, Night and Day is like an old love song, like Night and Day. Yeah, but you are the one. Did they, did they use that movie, or did they use that song in the movie? No. No. So, no. Th- ah, and then nuts. you don't even learn that Night is his name until the end of the movie. Well, that I'm fine with, but and and then he has the little knight. Right. Yeah. Okay, right. Because it's the only piece of his original identity that he decided to keep. That I don't know. That was cute. Um, but yeah, so I was like, the night has a thousand eyes. Gotcha. That'll, that'll work. So first act, um, very similar to the first act in Night and Day, um, but small changes. June Haven is a brilliant scientist with a passion for classic cars. Mm -hmm. She invents a small high-powered battery to power her classic cars electrically instead of using gas and quickly realizes that her battery is much more powerful than being able to power just a, an old Grand Prix. Right. Um, and then things start to go bad fairly quickly. June is fired from her university job with no warning. Someone breaks into her lab and trashes it. She also begins to notice that she's being followed and she just, she can't take it anymore. She decides she's going to take a trip to Wichita to get some old car parts. And then at the airport, she bumps repeatedly into handsome Roy Miller, played by Tom Cruise. June is flattered by his attentions and continues to flirt with him on the mostly empty plane. While she's in the bathroom, Roy reveals his true nature. He's a cold-blooded mercenary hired to kill June and take the battery. He unloads on the other members of the plane, secret agents tasked with following and protecting June without her knowledge. Mm -hmm. June comes out of the bathroom, sees everyone dead, sees the plane is going down, screams, and is knocked out by Roy. So now we're 
getting more towards the middle act, she wakes up on an unknown beach. I skipped a lot of a the lot, stuff yeah. in Night and Day. <laughs> and, and I thought the island would be a great place for them to, to duke it out in like right. a cat and mouse situation. So she wakes up on an unknown beach and notices she's now wearing a bikini and that Roy has tied her to a rattan chair. He tells her that he thought she'd appreciate being comfortable while he interrogates her. So now this Roy, he's just a creep. Um, He assures her that they're completely off the grid so she'll get no aid from the agency. If she wants to remain alive, she has to do what he says. June, she's having none of this. She headbutts Roy hard enough to stun him, steals his briefcase, kind of a collateral callback instead, um, and runs into the jungle, still tied to the chair. Uh, And when she's far enough away, she manages to break the chair by slamming it against a tree. Um, And then she looks through Roy's briefcase and finds photos of herself taken with a zoom lens from far away. Creepy. Roy has been watching June for months. Uh, And one of the photos is creased and folded. She unfolds it and sees a picture of herself naked caught through her webcam. So he's he's a total creepy stalker and a killer. But now there's feelings in the game. Uh, She digs through the briefcase more and then she finds a phone and she tries to use it. But of course, there's no reception because they're on an island and she can hear Roy calling from close by. He's tracking her. Mm -hmm. So then she runs to the other side of the island. She sees a cruise ship offshore. She decides to swim for it. She makes it. They pull her on board and she looks back at the beach where Roy is standing there just looking resigned. Like kind of how he looks when Peter Sarsgaard looks at him through the window where he's just like, I'm here. You can't stop me. (laughs) So now we're getting into act three. The cruise ship docks in Spain and June heads to the American embassy. There there's already federal agents and they insist that they're going to keep her safe. Um, They assign her Agent Fitzgerald, um, who Peter Sarsgaard played, to take her to a safe house. As Fitzgerald is driving June, we hear a thump on the roof of the car. Tom Cruise is so good at jumping on cars. He is. (laughs) It's Roy. Roy slides down the front windshield and then shoots directly at Fitzgerald. The car swerves. June grabs the wheel briefly before Roy swings himself into the car and replaces Fitzgerald in the driver's seat. Again, things Tom Cruise is just amazing at. Uh, And Roy says nonchalantly, hi, June. Kind of like he does in in Night and Day where he's like, oh, hi, June. How's it going? (laughs) Uh, June tries to jump out of the car and then Roy pulls her back in saying, now don't do that. Um, And for some reason in this final bit, I just started writing dialogue. (laughs) I don't know why. Sometimes inspiration hits you. I guess so, especially for fake movies. For my real movies, inspiration is not there. (laughs) Um, And he says, I'm just after the battery. You know that. And then she questions him and she's like, is that true? Or would the pictures you keep in your bag tell me otherwise? And then Roy says, those are private. (laughs) Which is ironic since he's fine on her. 
And then she says, so was my life until you put a thousand eyes on me. Title callback. Nice. Uh, and then um, he says, you did that when you created the battery. And then she says, you can fucking have it then. And she hurls the battery at Roy's face. He swerves. June takes his gun, successfully rolls out of the car, shoots the car's gas tank, and then walks away what? from the explosion. Crazy. I think Cameron Diaz could do everything that this pitch demands of her mm-hmm. as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yes, but so she she makes it out alive, and Roy right. is dead. Or is he? Oh, that would be such a great... Okay, yeah. I would I would add on to that post-credit sequence right. there where... The hand coming out of the burning car wreckage. Something like that, or like the firefighters excavating the vehicle and them being like, there's nobody here. And then Roy is standing by the side of the road smoking right. a cigarette. There is... Oh, I was going to say there is a body there, but then it's... Fitzgerald's body. Oh, yeah, that's what? right. That's right. It's just Fitzgerald's body. There's no Roy. But yeah, I, I, I would definitely... I feel like if if Tom Cruise played a movie monster, I mean, not Lestat, but an actual like villain, right. villain he, he would be unkillable. Like, he's the type of villain right. where I'd be like, he ain't dead. Like, and yeah. I mean, even in Collateral, like, are we sure? Right. <laughs> <laughs> He's so good in that movie. Um, yeah, you want to get into Collateral? Let's get into Collateral. Sure. So I think the big elephant in the room is if you're going to pick a Tom Cruise horror movie, why wouldn't you pick Interview with the Vampire? Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, when uh, when we were picking movies last week and you said, oh yeah, Collateral, I was like, oh shit, let's do that movie. Because one, you had never seen it. And That's two, true. I am such a huge Michael Mann fan. I am a Michael Mann boy through and through, <laughs> through and through. I love pretty much every movie he's ever done, even the quote unquote duds. I just love all of his movies and Collateral is one of my favorites. What are the duds? What are the bad man movies? Uh, well, I don't think Public Enemies was too critically well received, um, but I like that movie. It's a really interesting movie. Um, and then Black Hat. Black Hat was kind of a dud. Um, and Miami Vice, Miami Vice kind of... Oh, he of, did that movie too? Yeah, that oh. movie kind of... When it came out in theaters, it was kind of all chopped up and the director's cut on DVD is a lot better. It really? things up, yeah. But that movie's kind of had a cult following grow behind it. Um, it's a great movie. Interesting, Miami Vice. I saw that in theaters and I would agree with you that the, the cut for theaters version was very confusing. Very and, confusing. And it's really just like... Jamie Foxx and Colin Farrell standing on Miami rooftops wearing silk shirts or something. <laughs> like... Right. Um, yeah, the cut, I forgot. I, I, I don't know if you can find the original cut anymore because oh. um, they just released the director's cut, which is the good version. But um, yeah, they. Um, I guess they chopped it up for whatever reason to, for, to, to help with pacing, even though... Michael Mann's script for that movie is very tight in terms of like A leads to B leads to C leads to D like all of this really sort of heavy under um, undercover police work going on and they have to do all this stuff to get undercover and then keep their cover and all this crazy stuff that if you start screwing with the the syntax of the movie it just doesn't make any sense. 
Right. So I remember coming out of that movie theater going, that movie made no sense. But if I watch it now, I'm like, no, that movie makes perfect sense. So I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, with Collateral, though, and like, and this comes back to the conversation around thrillers, whether right. thrillers count as horror. And I would argue that I, I agree with you that they do, and particularly in the way that the final scenes of Collateral oh, were yeah. filmed and the music cues, the the way they shot it, the way that they, um, you know, orchestrated the music around it. It's like very by-the-book horror scenes. Right. Where, like, it, it, I felt like I could have been watching Scream. Yeah, as it much. turns into, like, a slasher villain hunting yes. down his prey. Yeah, yes, it's, absolutely. Oh, it's so good. So I, I feel like it counts. What do you think? Yeah, no, I I agree. It's a little bit of a stretch because it's also got the action-y kind of plot and stuff like that. Like, it's a little action-heavy for being just a normal thriller. But, um, and I mean, last week I picked The Aura, which is kind of a non-traditional sort of thriller, non-horror-y movie too. But I don't know. I mean, I hadn't seen Interview with a Vampire in years, probably a decade at least. Mm-hmm. So I rewatched it just to kind of have an opinion on it for this podcast. Great. Oof. What's your opinion? <laughs> it does not hold up. I Really? It was kind of a slog, man. I could not get into it. Well, the problem is that Lestat dies and then the movie goes on. <laughs> Yeah, he does disappear for quite a bit of the movie, but they replace Lestat with Antonio Banderas, so it's kind of cool. I don't know, Antonio Banderas no. is a badass. He's a badass, but, but. In, in that movie, he wears one of the worst wigs slash hair extension yeah, pieces. Yeah, a lot of the wigs I've in it are kind ever of... ever seen. Yeah. It's, it's truly It's a, a bit crime. of a cheesy movie. It's a bit... I, I don't think it holds up. It is cheesy, but but you know what? I would argue that there are some good cruise scenes. Like, yeah. particularly the scene when um, Lestat finds Louis in the house, like the plague house where he mm-hmm. was hanging out. And then Lestat begins dancing... With the dead body, with the, mom, yeah. with the dead body of the mom, and acting like he's having the time of his life, that I think is a great Tom Cruise moment. Or in that movie when Louis and Claudia kill, they think they kill Lestat, uh, and then Lestat comes back right. and he's like playing on the piano yeah, and so explaining cool. what his life was like, feeding off of swamp. Yeah. rodents and like he i just i i really enjoy tom cruise playing a bad guy maybe right maybe that's why collateral seemed like such a good choice because he's such an unrepentant yeah. bad guy he doesn't play too many bad guys but in this he's movie he is a hundred percent heel for sure i love it i i want him to play more heel roles yeah and the, well, I guess um, you could count Tropic Thunder in right, that. Right, yeah. Oh, it's so good. He's so good in that movie. I, again, like, I I feel like now that Tom Cruise has been around long enough, he's not like, like, a, like a John Cena where he can never play a heel ever. Right. Because there's so many people counting on him as a face. Um, but yeah, I, I, I want more heel turns with 
with Tom Cruise because he's so good at it. He's so good. And this movie, just like the whole aesthetic of Vincent, the sort of salt and pepper look with that sort of he stubble. He looks good. He looks good with the salt and pepper. Suit. Oh, man. Like, like you said, I'm not... I mean, I'll admit when a man is attractive, I'm not particularly attracted to Tom Cruise, but in Collateral... He's a good-looking guy. He's looking sharp. Yeah. He was looking sharp in that movie. But, like, again, like, because he's a killer, he's kind of, like... I. You know, when I was doing my rom-com pitch, I kind of struggled on whether or not I wanted to make... Because I, I decided to make Vincent one of the heroes, but I was like, should I make him gay or straight? Right. Because Vincent in this movie is like completely devoid of any kind of intimacy like he's almost um like he's definitely on the spectrum (laughs) in some way um but yeah the the way they did his character was great and his whole thing about i ching and and like fate and uh he they they really fleshed out his character well like and they they did the same for jamie fox too where they they made Mm -hmm everybody's motivations extremely clear yeah like everybody had a job to do in the movie and they did that job there was no place where i was like why is this character here it's a taut thriller oh it is very taut very taut (laughs) (laughs) or tight (laughs) you know he just gives you just a locked script uh, and then this is another movie where everyone was fucking in this movie. Yeah, man. I always forget Mark Ruffalo. Mark, Mark Ruffalo, Ruffalo hanging out. Academy Award winning Viola Davis is also in the movie. Or wait, no. Viola no. Davis was, in, was in Night, Night and Day. Night and Day yeah. She was in Night and Day. Viola um, Davis always picks these weird movies to show up in where she's like, she's in the most schlockiest, beest of movies, but then she like... She also is a Academy Award caliber actress who is in good movies. She, like Tom Cruise, is a hard-working actor. Yeah. And weirdly enough, I was looking them up. They're close to the same age. Hmm. Even though I think Viola Davis has basically looked the same age for decades. It, so is Tom Cruise. So is Tom man. Cruise. That's crazy. But, but yeah, he's actually older than her by a few years. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, but so but, no, there there are a lot of not just Mark Ruffalo. There there were a lot of like interesting cameos in this in Collateral that I was like, oh, this person's in this movie. So let's and look. to start off the movie. Uh yeah oh let's talk about who starts it off. What? All right, all right. So to start off with, here's how Collateral begins: a mysterious gray-haired man. Like, Tom Cruise is the first shot of the movie, which I thought was interesting. A mysterious gray-haired man, played by Tom Cruise, lands at LAX and bumps into an equally mysterious man, played by Jason fucking Statham. What? Oh, oh, like, just to Michael Mann boy (laughs) out, Jason Statham playing the transporter, basically. Is that a Michael Mann movie? No, but, like, the fact that we get Jason Statham playing the transporter in a Michael Mann movie, even if it's just for 15 seconds, it's just, like, the coolest little, like, what-if universe kind of thing. I I just, I love it so much. I loved it. I loved it. Like, I feel like 
I wonder if when this movie aired, Jay, or like it, I think 2004 was yeah. when it was released, if Jason Statham was as recognizable then as I don't he is think now. so. I'm, I'm really trying to remember. I think when I saw the movie in theaters, he might have been like, oh, hey, it's that guy. But he wasn't Jason fucking Statham. Like, right. Yeah. Whereas like you watch this movie now, you see them bump into each other and it's like, okay, clearly these guys are assassins. Right. Like, they're both huge Well, Jason Statham stuff. plays a transporter. He's right. transporting the data <laughs> to the guy. Like, oh, it's just... Uh, transporter 2 is a great movie. One is good, but 2 is freaking great. I'm more of a Crank fan. Oh, Crank is so good. <laughs> crank is so good. No, I, I know. I, I, love <laughs> I love it. But yeah, so that's all we see of Jason Statham. He just... He's the guy who switches briefcases yeah. with Cruz, and he tells him to... I mean, to... 30 seconds tops, but... Yeah, but I But mean, what a delightful 30 seconds. Oh, it was a delight. <laughs> um, so they clearly work for the same business. We then cut to taxi driver Max, played by Jamie Foxx. He's just starting his night shift. He has an annoying fare played by Debbie Mazar. You know Debbie Mazar, right? Um, Entourage, right? Yes. Yeah. And some other guy before he picks up Annie, a state prosecutor played by Jada Pinkett Smith. Uh, They're vibing. They're having a good time. uh, So much so that Annie ends up giving Max her business card before she leaves, inviting him to call her. And then Max remains parked outside her building when the gray-haired man enters his cab. He tells Max his name is Vincent. Vincent offers Max $600 to drive him around the whole night to his six stops. And Max reluctantly agrees. The first stop is an apartment complex. While uh, Max... And Vincent tells Max to wait in the alley. And then while Max is eating a sandwich and flipping through car catalogs, a dead body falls on the roof of the cab. What? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for me, this is, again... A point in the horror category, just because right. the the shocking the spooks. Yeah. Uh, and then Vincent comes out, and he immediately admits that he shot the man. Red light, he, Max. I love uh, that line. He, he that line, and then the line right before it, where he's like, "I shot him." The fall and the bullets killed yeah. him. That's a very Michael Mann kind of thing, too. Yeah. No. There's there's some great little yeah. lines in the movie, and then so Vincent does the red light thing. He he threatens Max with a gun and makes him hide the body in the trunk of the cab. And then Max drives with Vincent, basically holding him hostage. They get stopped by the LAPD, but Max is able to talk himself out of the ticket. That said, the LAPD still alerts Max's boss that there's damage to the cab, and then the boss calls Max over the taxi's radio system. Vincent forces Max to tell off his boss and insult him. As Max drives Vincent through all six of his stops, i.e. people he has to kill, a cop named Fanning, played by little Mark Ruffalo, sporting... Marky Ruffy. Little Marky Ruffy, sporting, sporting a little slick back hairdo yeah. and, a, and a goatee, making him look like a cute little panda bear. <laughs> <laughs> I love Mark Ruffalo. Um, and then Fanning makes the connection that all the victims are related to a case that is set to go to trial in the coming days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Max's boss, he phones in again and reminds Max that he's got to visit his sick mom in the hospital. 
Vincent demands that he goes with him, and as they are finishing the visit with Max's mom, Max steals Vincent's briefcase and runs away from him. Bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off. Super bold. (laughs) Max then does an extremely bold thing by throwing that briefcase over a pedestrian bridge and onto the highway below where all of its contents are destroyed. Now, instead of Vincent like killing Max in a blind rage, he kind of likes him, uh, Vincent forces Max to then go meet with the gangster who arranged the hits to get back the intel on Vincent's assignment. Max gets in by pretending to be Vincent, and he sees Felix, the gangster played by Javier Bardem. Whoa! A pre, a pre, I imagine this is like pre-Cohen um, Brothers, oh, yeah. Javier. Um, and despite some close calls, Vincent, I mean, sorry, Max is successful. They get the assignments. Uh, and then this next scene is really cool. Um, I love, um, I, I, catnip when it comes to action movies for me is anytime there's a shootout in a club, like when they did it in John Wick and then when they do it in this movie, it's, it's great. There's a little fight scene in Miami Vice too. Oh yeah. A club fight scene. That sounds fun. Uh, and so there's another target at that club as Vincent is doing some cool ass action shit, stabbing, (laughs) he's stabbing people, he's shooting people. He's just looking like a fucking badass, but also an unrepentant serial killer. Uh, so as Vincent's doing that, Fanning catches up with Max and assures him that he knows Max is innocent and they're running out of the club with everyone else. And just as they get out of the club, Vincent shoots and kills Fanning. Heartbreaking. So this is so heartbreaking. And then for me, this is another point in the horror category because for me, some of the most poignant mo- things in horror is when there's a loss of hope. Yeah. Like you think that that's your chance. Like you're going to make it out of that situation alive. You're going to, you come to the cops, but it turns out the cop's a member of the family or the killer's (laughs) right behind the cop and he kills him. Like that, the loss of hope in a horror movie is one of the most poignant devices. Right. And And, especially since all the other cops thought that Max was Vincent. Yes. He was the only cop who thought he was innocent. It's, it's really well done. Uh, and he just dies. Like there's no, right. there's no like, like once Mark Ruffalo's dead, like he's dead. Like, yeah. Like that plot line of them following the the crimes is just over. Uh, and you know Vincent's like, come on, we gotta go. And he, in kind of a funny way, is like, he's like, I saved your life, and I didn't even get a thank you. Yeah. Um, but Max, you know, he's finally fucking fed up with everything and he deliberately crashes the taxi. The car flips over, Vincent escapes, and Max is apprehended by a policeman who notices the body of the first guy who got killed. Max overpowers the policeman, handcuffs him to the wreckage, and Max realizes by looking at the new laptop that they got from Felix that Annie, the prosecutor, she's the final target. Which, I mean, pretty much from the get, you know that's exactly where this movie was going. But oh, I had I, no idea. Really? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie. The first time I saw this movie, I was just so enthralled in the movie. 
I wasn't even thinking that far ahead. Well, yeah, everyone has a purpose in this movie. Right. Even, like, like it's the, so, yeah, it's so economical and well done. It, it really is. Like, I, and again, like, if, if they didn't bring Annie back for the final act, I would have been pissed because it's like, oh, yet another movie that's going to tack right. on a romantic plot that has absolutely nothing to do with the main plot. But no, the romantic plot is totally essential to the right. main plot. Um, Max calls Annie from the roof of a parking garage where he can see into her building. That was super cinematic, too. Yeah. Vincent, he's already there. Uh, so Max goes into the office building to save Annie. He shoots Vincent in the ear, but, you know, it's just a scratch. Um, they get out of the building. Vincent chases Annie and Max onto the subway. Subway showdown, another catnippy thing from, uh, from action movies that I love it. Uh, Vincent and Max fire at each other, which this is for me the Western moment mm-hmm. in the movie where it's like two gunmen facing off. They shoot. Which one goes down? Turns out it's Vincent. Vincent is mortally wounded and he calmly just sits on the subway across from Max and Annie. And then he calls back a story he had told Max earlier in the movie about a man who had died on the subway and nobody noticed. Yeah. And then Vincent asks Max, do you think they'll notice? So it's like, oh, That's it's so, so cool. it's like a cool callback. They, they bring it all together and wrap it in a tight, shiny bow. Uh, and then Max and Annie get off the subway and walk away, roll credits. That's yeah. it. This is just one of those tiny little Michael Manboy moments for me. But I mean, I've, I've found it from IMDb. It's like a little uh-huh. IMDb trivia. But Heat starts out at a subway oh. and ends in an airport. And this movie starts at an airport and ends on the subway. Oh, that's oh, that's nice. It's like a that's, nice little compliment. That's yeah. a nice. So so he just he decided to reverse it. Right. Do you feel like Michael Mann's the kind of person who just starts with like a one? sentence plot summary and then works that into a big movie where it's like a a contract killer lands at LAX and gets into a cab. Uh, I don't know. I I know that Stuart Beatty wrote this movie and I don't know what else he's done. But um, I don't know how much Michael Mann kind of rewrote it or reworked it or um, I know the guy who wrote Night and Day he hasn't written basically anything else. Really? But I saw some of the names attached to the rewrites in, like, Scott Frank, who um, did Out of Sight and A Walk Among Tombstones ah. and stuff. So, like, yeah, Scott Frank a had a part. Yeah, romance element, yeah. too. And um, there were a few other names attached to some of the remake or to some of the rewrites, which is probably why that movie is so much fun. But, um, yeah, I don't know. This movie just seems really tight from the script phase. So, I, I imagine Michael Mann is a very thorough very thorough director so like everything is kind of really well thought out um all of his actors really go through and like really work out their characters into like the nitty-gritty like subconscious levels so like one of the cool things i remember watching the behind the scenes features for this movie is um like he really wanted vincent to have this kind of air about him where he could like walk into a crowd and just blend right in and no one would be able to, like, pick him out of a lineup. Right. And so what he had Tom Cruise do... Like samurai style. Right. And so what he had Tom Cruise do, which is... This is Tom Cruise, who 
like in 2004 is fucking Tom Cruise. He had Tom Cruise dress in a UPS uniform and deliver packages at a mall. And like he was, he basically tasked Tom Cruise with like, if you can go through this crowded mall to a store and back without anyone recognizing you, then you're Vincent. It's like, that's just that kind of cool little Michael Mann kind of... Wait, so like before Tom Cruise officially got the role, he had him do that? Or this is after Uh, I think he he had the role, but it was like one of those little acting challenges that he would have him do. And the the behind-the-scenes features has like hidden camera footage of Tom Cruise just going up and delivering this package and like shooting the shit with this like... Was he successful? Yeah. He he has a full-blown like small talk conversation with this store owner... And delivers a package and then just like walks away back through the mall and no one says anything. Ah, oh, it's so cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, little things like that. Um, you know, just that sort of like, you know, little stuff. But yeah, I know. I know that this uh, this episode's all about all about Tom Cruise. But man, Jamie Fox is amazing in this movie too. Yeah, there's definitely some career best Jamie Fox acting. Here. Yeah, he was up for um, best Academy best actor for Ray, and he was up for best supporting actor for this movie. So in the in, same year, yeah, in two in one year, he went from like goofy comedian to twice nominated, once winning Academy Award winning actor. That was a good year for Jamie yeah. Foxx. Hells yeah. Um, yeah, but I, Michael Mann said something very smart about casting comedians in roles, which ah. is, um, which is, I think this was um, Michael Mann who said this, which is comedians are all about timing and acting is all about timing. So that's why comedians do such a good job at transitioning to drama in serious roles. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It does make sense. Michael Mann's a smart guy. <laughs> He's, he is. He's a smart man. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think there's so many great moments in this movie. Like we had to we had to blast over some of them in the synopsis. Oh no, we we definitely but did. Like the hall, the the alleyway shootout scene. Yo, homie, you got my briefcase. Oh, oh. yeah. It's like in in two seconds he fires six shots and it's just bam 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 like that western vibe that he's talked about. It's oh. just boom 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 boom. What? It's perfect because, like, it's, like, the perfect contrast between the, like, posturing of these, like, street toughs where they're like, yeah, we're bad. He's, like, holding the gun sideways. And then, yeah, and then Tom Cruise, like a fucking samurai, just fires it off with, with no, like... With the super small, efficient smallest like, body movements right. ever, it it very John Wick. I really liked that scene too. Yeah, it's so great. Um, and the scene where he shoots the guy in the club and he shoots him twice because you know the thing that they tell you. Um, one of the things for like Marines and stuff is like if you shoot someone twice in the chest, once in the head, that's quote unquote a confirmed kill, right? So even uh. if that person, this is what I've heard. I don't know if this is true or not, but this is what I've heard. Um, well, there's kill, there's confirmed and unconfirmed kills. Right, but I guess it's not confirmed. But what it is is like it's a what it's supposed to be is if you shoot someone twice in the chest and once in the head, if they survive that, then it's not on you in terms of like, oh, well, they survived. Like no one should be able to logistically survive two shots to the chest, one uh, shot to the head. So he if gets you sh- the job done. If you shoot someone three times, but you shoot them once in the shoulder, once in the hip, and once in the leg, that's 
that doesn't count because those you can survive. But twice in the chest, once in the head, that you're supposed to not be able to walk away from. Interesting. What did you think of the moment where they were stopped and two coyotes walked oh. across? Oh, yeah. The so we'll get into that. But in the club scene, when he shoots the guy twice uh-huh. and then he reloads, and first of all, his reload is super quick, but he reloads and then shoots the guy in the head. So, like, he finishes, even though he's run out of bullets, mm-hmm. he makes sure to finish the job. You know, it's like boom, boom, oh, reload, boom, finish. Oh, that was so cool. That, that was really yeah. cool. And I, I like that, like, um, it seems like uh, Tom Cruise doesn't always use the, like, Wexler stance when he shoots, which is, like, the default movie shooting stance, but it's not actually right. how people tend to shoot if yeah. they're actually trying Michael to Michael Mann's probably, like, another person who was, a, like, in part of that. Um, mm-hmm. Who like, like very, it to look he's very real. technical, yeah. Like that's one of the things I love about Miami Vice is that movie just looks technical. I don't know if it is or not, but it just looks mm. so cool. Um, but the the coyote part, I don't know. I just I love the sort of relationship that these two develop. You know, it kind of starts with that moment you said when um, Tom Cruise sort of pretends to be his lawyer when his boss is calling him. Right, right. he's like, tell him to shove this fat cab up his ass. And um, yeah, and then, you know, they go to the club and then they're kind of having some fun at the jazz club. And I love that whole scene where he shoots the guy. It was like, it's really sad. Um, I like movies like this, though, where it's like, it's not afraid to go to those levels where it's like, yeah, innocent people are just going to die or maybe they're not innocent but they're like yeah people are just gonna die they were going to put a drug lord in jail (laughs) they were innocent to the degree required but yeah i think it definitely has that thing where it's like you like there's like that saying whoever fights monsters be careful lest you become one so max encounters the monster vincent and then he he takes some of the essence of the monster with him. Like right. you see the beginning of it when Vincent's like the devil on his shoulder being like, tell your boss to fuck off, right. basically. <laughs> um, and then when he gets to Javier Bardem, to Felix, now he has to be Vincent in order to survive. And he's really good at mimicking vincent style yeah that's such a great scene yeah up into the point where he tells um felix like get your guy to stop pointing a gun at me right you know like he he totally mimics the the sort of i like the mimicry of the e Ching darwin roll with it stuff Mm -hmm. like yeah it's so cool how he just takes his mannerisms and just envelops them and Oh, he, he, it, it, it's great. <laughs> and then by the end, he's, he's finally, Jamie Foxx, that is, by the end, he's finally got the stones to do something extreme right. to and there's, win out. Yeah, there's no hesitation in terms of, um, you know, when he says, like, Max, what are you going to do about it? He's like, boom, he just shoots him. There's none of that, like normal kind of action hero stuff where i like that i i like that michael mann was like fuck the villain exposition shit like i'm gonna do what anyone would really do which is not hesitate and take the chance take the shot Mm -hmm. 
But yeah, I like that coyote moment because it's so cool where Tom Cruise, you can tell he, I mean, it's like a silent scene, mm-hmm. but you can tell, and I like the um, the Chris Cornell, that's his name, right? Chris Cornell song pops in. Oh, yeah. I was trying to like figure out, I was like, yeah. what early 2000s <laughs> band is this? What's the is, band? Or, the, um, what is Chris Cornell? Audio band? Slave. Is that yeah. what it is? I don't know if it's a solo project or Audio Slave project, but... It's a it's a great song. Yeah, no, it was it, it was definitely of its time. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I love that moment because it's silent except for the music, and you can tell Tom Cruise is like, "Hey, we got places to go, people to see, we got people to kill. Let's move, move, move. Time mm-hmm. is of the essence." And you can tell he's thinking all this while he's looking around, like, "What could we possibly be stopping for?" And Jamie Fox is just kind of like so nonchalantly, casually, just kind of like letting these two coyotes pass in the street. And Tom Cruise has this moment where he's like, I never would have even thought of that, you know? And he kind of like, I don't know, he kind of bonds with them a little bit. And I think that's probably why he sort of saves them in the club, you know? Because they're like, the two coyotes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. It's just, it's cool. And then I like at the end, this time I really picked up on it in terms of like um, sort of how he takes vincent's mantra and philosophy of like if nothing matters then i'm just gonna crash the car now like i'm just gonna kill me and you what's the difference i'll just do it now and then vincent freaks out right yeah that's such a great moment where vincent starts to like lose his cool and he's not in control and that's the uh, only time though yeah everywhere else he's he's sakamoto right (laughs) um yeah so i don't know i just i really like that kind of relationship they develop and how like the whole movie is kind of close quarters them in this tense situation um it's really cool it is a really good movie and i i i stand by it as as our choice for this episode because it's much better than interview with the vampire i mean there's there's definitely that but also like like, if I were a horror movie director, I could watch Collateral yeah. and take things away from it that I could use. Right. Where it's like, this stuff really works. Like, just tense mm-hmm. and close quarters. Um, but yeah, like, and then totally turns into a slasher movie at right. the end. There's a few movies that do that where, like, at the end of the movie, they turn into slashers. I'm thinking of Sunshine. Have you ever seen Sunshine? Oh, yeah. Sunshine yeah, totally just... counts. Yeah. <laughs> and I know some people don't like that. That was one of the complaints about this movie was, like, the ending kind of maybe has one too many coincidences involved and it turns into sort of generic slasher flick oh, who territory. who cares? <laughs> well, I mean, they care, right. but... <laughs> I don't know. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of goofy stuff in this movie that I give it a pass because it's just something about the execution of it is good enough, and it's kind of like that kind of movie where you know, like uh, it's kind of eye rolly. But when Tom Cruise shows up at the cab and he almost doesn't get in, oh yeah, I remember like, okay. that. Yeah, and then when Mark Ruffalo shows up at the hospital and they ride the same elevator, I'm like, but they don't know. Right. <laughs> it's a little goofy, and then like how how super quick uh mark ruffalo is like hey remember that guy in oakland that cabbie who killed three people uh wasn't the didn't that guy always think there was someone else in the cab it's kind of like he pulls uh, that out of thin air like so, like this is just a thing that right. tom cruise does with cabbies right. 
So I don't know. It's a little. I I can see it being a little silly, but there's again, there's just something about the way Michael Mann shoots it, executes it. I love the digital cinematography in this movie. Uh, this was one of the first movies that was almost primarily shot in all digital. I think. Um, oh yeah, it does kind of have like a like a cami feel to there's it. There's no but... way that you would have gotten all of that night grade with a film. Like they would have had to completely shot and lit the movie a hundred percent different if they shot it on film. But it it looks good, and like my main complaint about things that are shot digitally is when the frame rate is right. too fast and it looks weird um but this movie didn't have that right like it looked like it was shot on video but it still looked really cinematic yeah yeah uh yeah no i i mean it's really like hard to come up Mm -hmm. with any kind of critical thing to say about collateral uh so i mean i feel like i already know the answer but i still have to ask who is your crush from collateral well, you know, I'm going to go with Peter Berg. Peter Berg? Yeah, Peter Berg. He was um, Fanning's partner. What? Why him? Because I, I don't know. I like Peter Berg as a director, even though he's directed some, he's directed some uh, Michael Bay-ish level hoorah America's boom booms. <laughs> but he's also like, the. have you ever seen The Rundown? The with Rundown? The Rock? Um, oh wait, is that the movie that also has Sean? Yeah, Sean uh, William Scott. Sean William Scott, and then um, Rosario uh, Dawson and Christopher Walken. The Rock is coming back to his town to restore order. Mm-hmm. Isn't that no? Yeah. Well, no, that's um, Walking Tall. Oh, I've seen Walking Tall. Okay, The Rundown is a great movie, and so Peter Berg has directed some of these really cool movies, uh, and he's directed a few Michael Mann esque movies. So it's okay. cool that Michael Mann puts him in his movies. Um, I don't know, I just like his character. I like him as an actor. He's got this style. And I always like the character who's kind of like, who's kind of right about things. But, but no is, one listens to them. Right, yeah. <laughs> so he's kind of like, he's got this like, he's got this kind of I don't care attitude where he's like, eh, but the feds are going to come in and take it all over anyway. And like, that's exactly what happens. And then his partner ends up getting killed because he's too, he cares too much. And this guy's like, should have been a he grumpy guy. Yeah, so I don't know. I just really like Peter Berg. It's like it's it's the definition of crush, right? It's like a small part, but I just have a little crush on him. No, that I think that makes sense. And I I also I I like directors who also pop up in movies like right. Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog is sure. always doing that. <laughs> yeah, so great that he's in uh, Mandalorian. Oh, which... he's great in the Mandalorian. <laughs> so bring me the child <laughs> um but uh but yeah no i i can i could see that weirdly enough i guess i'm gonna give the answer that i would have expected from you it's vincent i'm i love vincent yeah. how can you not i mean i do but that's like i don't have a crush on vincent like i'm full on marriage quality level in so if we're just talking about little film crushes like i just have a little film crush on peter berg in this movie yeah i feel like crush is more appropriate for my feelings towards tom cruise and and vincent (laughs) simply because like you know it's like 
I wouldn't want to hang out with. Vin. We're right. not getting married, like you. We're not signing on the dotted <laughs> line, uh, having a courthouse wedding. Don't let me get cornered. You don't got the trunk space. Like, uh, <laughs> marry me. <laughs> um, yeah. So the did you perfect wanna... man doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, did you want to go into your remake first? Sure. I gotcha. will say I'm really excited to hear yours, though, just because sure. I, I'm i always curious when you say that you've put more into the rom-com than Oh, the yeah, horror. there's more into the rom-com on this one for sure. I feel like that's a funny thing. Like, do you, do you feel similarly to me where sometimes writing in the genre that's not, like, your genre is somehow easier? It could be, but I think another thing is... Or I you think just don't that, care as much, so it's like, I can write it more easily? I think, for me, the trouble with Night and Day, turning it into a horror movie, was that there were already so many kind of thriller-esque moments of Night and Day. Right. That, like, turning it into a thriller was hard because it already kind of straddled that line so well. And so that's why I kind of just copped out and was like, I'm just going to add monsters. Um, there's been a few movies where either the horror or rom-com version, it's been hard to go to the other one because there's yeah. been so much line crossing. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's what held me up more than anything. Interesting. Yeah, no, I've definitely noticed that where it's like some setups really lend themselves quite readily to the, to rom-com plot. I mean, certainly in Collateral, you had the whole sequence between Annie and Max which felt like the beginning of a rom-com. Right. Yeah, it was a little um, meat cute. Yeah, it was a, it was a meat cute. She's she's a a, a woman who works too hard. Right. She doesn't have time for a social life. Blah blah blah. Like yeah. like they definitely are types like in a rom-com and I felt like I could have leaned into that aspect for the rom-com, but I decided to make mine about max and vincent instead for sure and and their romance so i also will say just to answer your question super quick um i think sometimes if you're going into a genre that isn't yours it's easier to lean into the tropes whereas if it is your genre you kind of want to be more bold and reinvent the wheel and like say something that hasn't been said that's true. So, yeah, yeah, I think I think sometimes it's easier to lean into the rom-com for me because I'm like, oh, I just know the formula. I do the formula. <laughs> yes. No, I think that's true. So I decided to call this movie Write It. And I was partially inspired by the song Pony by Genuine. Okay. Which, you know, I in this, I see Vincent very much like Genuine. He's just a... Uh, what does he say in the? Uh, I'm just a uh, look. He's I'm like just a poor boy. Uh, no, not a poor boy. <laughs> but like, basically, he's just looking for a partner, someone mm. who knows how to ride without mm. being fallen off. You know, like because, like yeah. I said, Tom Cruise's soulmate is a good driver. Right. I like that theory. It's a good. It's a very good theory. It's. It has to be a good driver. So Act One, you've got Max. He's a depressed cab driver. Oh, and this movie will resemble a movie we've reviewed before, by the way. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you'll you'll see. Um, so Max is a cab driver. He's living through his monotonous day to day grind by dreaming of owning his own limo company. 
But that all changes when he picks up a mysterious gray-haired man, played by Tom Cruise. Uh, They get to talking, and Vincent tells Max he's getting married, but he's got some loose ends to tie up first. Vincent has Max drive to an apartment complex and wait in the alley. And, of course, while Max is eating a sandwich and flipping through car catalogs, a dead body falls on the cab. Whoa! So we kept that. Vincent comes out and he tells Max the truth. He's a contract killer that just got burned from his agency and they're trying to kill him before he can reach his fiance Tim at their safe house in Mesquite, Texas. Okay. I don't know why I landed on Mesquite. <laughs> it was like I think it's so funny to me how sometimes when you make your rom-com how much of the horror murder aspects you keep. <laughs> Well, you know, there's nothing like death to make you want to have sex. Um, but yeah, and you know, like sometimes dead bodies can make a rom-com more fun. Sure. Um, so they, he's got to get to Tim in Mesquite uh, and Vincent needs Max to make it there. Max doesn't want to do it, but Vincent offers him a ton of money and he just mm-hmm. can't refuse. Blatantly, though, Max realizes he also says yes because he's attracted to Vincent's toothy Tom Cruise smile. Mm-hmm. Like, he hits him with that that devilish smile, and it's like, how can I say no? So now we're getting into the middle act. Um, as Vincent tells Max all about his fiance Tim, they drive from L.A. to Texas with the feds on their trail. We learn that Vincent treasures most of all an awesome driver. In his line of work, he needs a driver he can trust, and Tim was the best. That's how they fell in love. Um, And Vincent didn't mean to fall in love, but it just happened. And then they have this really cute argument about whether love just happens or grows over time, Mm. like Max thinks, because he's growing to love Vincent. And they encounter some hijinks on the road, like a shootout with the feds at a gas station, Um, Maybe they run into a weird hillbilly family that wants to eat them. Mm -hmm. Um, They go to a motel, but this is one of my favorite contrived tropes, but there's only one room and one bed. Oh, Oh, they have to sleep in the same bed. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? And then another trope that is so contrived, but I love it. All of their clothing is destroyed, so they have to wear silly clothes they bought at a thrift store. Mm. You know, like Tom right. Cruise has to dress like a cowboy. And yeah, like, there's yeah. a nice little dress-up <laughs> montage. Oh yeah, you know there's a montage. Um, and then as they encounter each road episode, Max comes out of his shell, and then also Vincent begins to start to fall for him too. Uh, and Max also proves himself to be pretty awesome at being a getaway driver. And Vincent can't stop flattering Max by telling how good he is. He's like, wow, you're so good at this. Uh, Sublime. (laughs) Sublime. This all culminates in the night before Vincent are about to head into Mesquite to find Tim. Vincent makes Max call his boss and curse at him for being a shitty boss. So we we kept that. Sure. And they laugh. And then Vincent goes in to hug Max. And the hug is incredibly sensual. It's it's a sex hug. Whoa. And they I almo- like it. they almost kiss. Um, but then Max is the one to pull back because he doesn't want to get between Vincent and Tim. Yeah. Good guy move. Good guy move. 
So now we're getting into the third act, and Vincent and Max, they're almost to Mesquite. They've stopped in a diner in Dallas before heading over to the safe house, but they've realized too late that they are surrounded by the bad guys, and they got to shoot their way out of that diner. You know, you can't deny Tom Cruise his shootout scenes. And then Vincent insists to Max that they have to separate so Vincent can draw the bad guys to him mm-hmm. and Max can live. But Max doesn't want to leave Vincent. And then Vincent suddenly gives him a passionate kiss. He tells Max, please go. And gives him like a smoldery look, you know, that that tells Max all the words he can't say. Mm. Now we cut to a year later. Whoa! <laughs> Time jump. Um... Max is successfully running his limo service. He's made it. He's realized his dream, but he's still not happy. And then one day he's approached by some feds and they reveal to him that Vincent has disappeared. He never made it to the safe house to Tim because if he had, they would have gotten him because Tim ratted out his fiance and betrayed him. Tim's an asshole, just like on Schumann from Job We Met. (laughs) Lucas. And then they're out of answers, so they've come to Max because they believe Vincent would tell Max where he is. Mm -hmm. And so Max, of course, is like, I don't know where he is. But then he goes back to his stuff and he, like, realizes, like, number one, he still loves Vincent. Number two, Vincent's clearly now single. Uh, Number three, Vincent is alive somewhere. And four, maybe Vincent loves him back. So he searches for clues. He finds a postcard from Playa del Carmen with no return address and a single letter V written on it because that's, nice. that's a move, right? So Max goes to Playa. We cut to Vincent running on the beach shirtless. You know, you got to throw some Tom oh, Cruise yeah. fan service in there. A classic car pulls up on the street next to him. The window rolls down, revealing Max in the driver's seat. He says, need a ride? Uh, And he also lowers his sunglasses Mm -hmm. in like a Jamie Foxx way. Uh, And then Vincent smiles and says, I thought you'd never ask. And he gets into the car. They kiss. The end. Nice. I like it. Yeah, very uh, sort of skirting that line of (laughs) action and romance and comedy. But there were hijinks. There were road hijinks. As long as there's hijinks. I think that's probably one of the big essential things for a rom-com is hijinks. There has to be episodes involved. Um, Very nice. Let's hear it. So I don't have a... I was thinking something like, I don't know, backseat wedding or something like that. (laughs) Is that the same as a backseat driver? Yeah, like something like that. So opening credits are like a very fancy catered wedding being assembled. Um, And then we cut to Max... And Max is a very efficient cabbie, but he hates people, but he has a very good work ethic. So he's like, you know, trying to save people money, but he, you know, very much like this movie, like uh, Kaleido. So he, um, he's got a good work ethic, but he kind of hates people. So he's kind of disgruntled. He's kind of crabby, that kind of stuff. And he, he decides he's going to do one last pickup for the day. So then Vincent gets in Max's cab and Vincent is writing something down and Max is trying to make small chit chat. 
and Vincent is like, I don't mean to be rude, but I have to work on this. And Max is like, sure. And then maybe there's a little joke about like, what's another word for blank? And I think it could be something where Max is like, like rude. And it's like, what? No, I wasn't mean trying to be rude. He's like, no, that's the word for blank. So, oh, you know, something yeah. cute like that. And so then he's like, where are you going? And it turns out they're going to go to a tuxedo place, right? And this is, I kind of did some rewriting, reworking here. So <laughs> Vincent has to go pick up a priest's outfit at a tuxedo place. Okay. So I don't know what kind of tuxedo places sell priest outfits, but like maybe it's not a tuxedo place. Maybe it's just like a wedding place. And he's got to pick up the priest outfit for the wedding place. And so Vincent goes inside to get his priest outfit, but it turns out it's the wrong store. He accidentally reserved the reservation for the store across town. And Max Uh is outside, and someone hits Max's car. So Max has to, like, deal with that this whole time. And it's like, I think the person who hits his car, maybe there's, like, a double-team scam going on where the person hits his car. is like, ow, my neck. And someone comes up Uh and is like, oh, I think you broke his neck. And they're like, Just like in South Korea. Right. (laughs) And so they, uh, and Max is like, listen, guys, I'm too streetwise for this kind of stuff. Pick on someone your own size or whatever. So then Vincent comes out and sees Max and begs Max to take him to another. And I'm thinking this will take place in New York instead of L.A. Right, where cabs make right, more yeah, sense. Right. And so uh, Vincent begs Max to take him. And Max is like, no, you were my last thing for the day. I'm trying to go home. He doesn't like people. He's in a bad mood. He just got hit by these people. He had arguments. He's like, no. So then Vincent is trying to hail a cab, but he can't do it. And then Max gets in his cab and he sees Vincent desperately trying to hail a cab. Maybe like he hails a cab, opens the door, but someone else gets in, that old gag. Oh, yeah. And so Vincent or Max is like, all right, fine, get in. So Max is taking Vincent to tuxedo place number two. And there, Vince, on the way, Vincent is like, hey, the thing that I'm writing is for my sister's wedding ceremony. I was picked to be a last minute fill-in to officiate the wedding and then there's a gay pride parade that blocks them from getting to the tuxedo place and max is like oh i hate these people and then vincent is like well actually the reason why my family doesn't like me and the reason why that i was only picked super last minute was because i'm gay what? And so Vincent is gay, and he was going to be a priest before he became gay, and so he was going to be a priest, but then he dropped out of the priesthood, but he's still priesty enough to be able to officiate the wedding, and he's filling uh. in last minute, and his family normally wouldn't want him to be at the wedding, but they need him last minute because something bad happened. So all this crazy stuff is going on, right? So then... So much pain Vincent's been through. I know. So Max is like, I hate these people, and Vincent is like like well i'm gay he's like no look what i said before when i met i hate these people and he's like no no it's okay i'm used to it does he mean straight people no so then he's like where am i gonna get a priest outfit and vincent is like or max is like i gotcha i know that they're doing a broadway version of doubt (laughs) 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 and so we're gonna go to broadway and steal a, a priest outfit for you. From doubt. From doubt. And so he's like... Oh, this is amazing. I, I would watch this movie right. in a heartbeat. <laughs> so then 
Max is like, or Vincent is like, we're never going to make it in that downtown Broadway traffic. And he's like, no. No, no, no. I got something for you. We're going to go on a motorcycle. So they go to some like garage where Vincent knows, or where, I keep getting the names wrong, where Max knows the garage owner. Mm-hmm. And this motorcycle is like, maybe it's some celebrity's motorcycle. We can fit it in a celebrity cameo or something. Tom Cruise? But No, because Tom Cruise is Oh, yeah, is yeah. I, but like, it could be like an right. Oceans thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so Max is willing to use his taxi cab as collateral to take the motorcycle. So if anything happens to the motorcycle, Max's livelihood is at stake. So we've got some stakes going on here. And so Max and Vincent get on the motorcycle and they have to like speed through downtown traffic. So there's some cool like chase stuff going on. Gotta have a chase. Right. And then they go to Broadway, and then there's like a mini heist scene, right? Because it's Tom Cruise, so we got to have a Mission Impossible. So there's a mini heist scene where Max goes up to the person who's working the door, who's Mm -hmm. like head of security at Broadway, and it's this pretty lady, and Max starts flirting with the pretty lady, and he distracts her while Vincent goes inside and steals the 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 priest uniform which is gonna be like really sparkly and stuff oh because doubt because <laughs> is... it's a it's a broadway musical <laughs> uh and so then they they finally they escape and maybe there's a little chase or something but then they get back on the motorcycle they go back to the garage and you know maybe there's like a nick on the motorcycle and the guy's like i don't know i have to keep the thing but, but there's you know some tension But then they get back in the car and they're going to go, they're finally going to go to the wedding. They got everything they need. They're going to go to the wedding. But then his sister calls. And all throughout this, we're going to have little scenes of the sister who's a total bridezilla and the family member is total like rich people, family member, spoiled rich people stuff. And the, the, the bridezilla has a nerdy friend or something who's like very mousy and always gets talked over and walked over and stuff. And so the bridezilla is like, my cake was ruined. I need you guys to go pick up the backup cake, but the backup cake's truck broke down, so you need to go pick it up from the truck. It's like a whole big, you know, we can like play into the fact that everything's going wrong, make it funny. And so then they go to the backup cake truck, but the type of frosting, maybe we can use coconut, right? The coconut frosting, since Tom Cruise loves coconut cake, Max is allergic to coconut. and he could die. Right, so he can't have the coconut cake in the car. They have to put it in the trunk. But Vincent wants to impress his sister and his family, and it has to be perfect, so he doesn't want to put it in the trunk because this is already the backup cake. So he wants to put it in the passenger seat, but Max can't have it in the passenger seat because or else he won't be able to drive because he's allergic to it. And so then they get into a little fight and maybe Vincent is like, you're being so selfish. And it's like, so selfish? I've been driving you all around town doing he all this for you. die of anaphylactic shock. So so the guy who, who drives the truck ends up fixing the truck and then they end up splitting ways. They have the big breakup because in the rom-com, you've always got to have the big breakup. Yes. So while Max is driving away, maybe like he has to slam on his brakes or something and like a little piece of paper comes flying forward and then he realizes that it's the speech that Vincent has been writing to officiate the wedding. No! And what's he going to do? So he reads the speech and he realizes the speech is like this super sincere speech 
all about family and togetherness and doing things for the ones you love and being not being selfish and all this stuff. And so Vincent is like, all right, I have to go give him this speech. So he goes, and while they're at the wedding, the family is ready to start, but um, Vincent doesn't have it. He goes to, like, get the speech, and then the sister gets all upset, and she's like, you ruined my big day. And then Max, boom, busts open the doors, and Max is like, no, you ruined <laughs> Vincent's day. And then Max storms up the, the aisle, and he, he goes up to the bride and he's like, you guys don't deserve Vincent. And so he pushes the bride into the cake. Right? Yeah. And so it's like, oh, no, wacky slapstick comedy. And then Max kisses Vincent. In front what? of everyone. In front of everyone. And then Vincent is like, I thought you hated, quote, unquote, those people. And he was like, yeah, I meant parade people. And he's <laughs> like, wait a minute. I thought you were flirting with the lady at the Broadway show. He's like, yeah, that lady was my old beard from college. And that's how I knew that Doubt was a musical and how I could get you in. Because it was like a little game we always used to play. It was like flirting. And so it's like misdirection. And so then... Um, he was gay for him after The all. whole time. Oh, I love it. And so then Vincent ta- or Max takes the flowers from the bride. And as they're walking away, Max like or Vincent or someone throws the flowers and the nerdy girl catches them. So she yes. gets her little moment of like, yay! Because uh, she's been walked over and yelled at the whole time, and then they go out to the street, and Max is like, "Let me let it, let me hail us a cab or something." And Vincent is like, "No, let me do it." And then, like in the moment of like growth and stuff, Vincent hails a cab, which he wasn't able to do at the beginning of the movie. Uh-huh. He hails a cab, and then the cab driver and his new beau get into the cab and make out as they drive off. That's so sweet. <laughs> oh, I love that we right. both made Max and Vincent our main couple. Oh, how could we not? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I mean, again, it's just like the whole like girl who works too much movie has been done right. so many. Like, I would have considered Annie, but it just there's a total bromance thing going on. Oh, this yeah. whole machismo thing. Michael Mann, he's got very machismo movies, and there's this whole relationship going on between Vincent and Max. So if you're going to do a rom-com... It should be them. It should be them. I definitely want to watch more gay rom-coms. Like, I mean, we're we're getting into 2020 where it, like, there's definitely been some that are getting major attention, like Love, Simon and and stuff like that. Um, But yeah, there there needs to be a lot more rom-coms of every coupling. Right. Like, I'll I'll take it. Yeah, I thought, uh, yeah, I was not surprised that you went with Vincent and Max as your couple. As opposed to Annie and Max. Oh, yeah. Because it's just been done so many times. So many times. So before we get into, before we wrap this up, I have to ask, since it was something we talked about when we talked about Matthew Good, do you think that Tom Cruise gives good look? Oh, who's better? Ooh, well, I don't know. I mean... I, it's Tom Cruise. I mean, it, cause there's, okay. So there's two looks. There's mm-hmm. the romance look, which is the look that a guy gives the heroine to show that he's falling in love with her, but okay. it's not like, it's not like a male gazy look where it's like, 
the look shows like, oh yeah, he thinks she's hot. Right. No, the look is like the look to show like he cares. Like right. that's the look in in rom coms. Um, and then in horror movies, I guess you could call the look quiet menace. Sure. I don't know. So do we do we think does Tom Cruise give good romance look? I think so. Uh, he might not be the best at. I don't know if he's got the great chemistry. He's got the greatest chemistry with um, Cameron Diaz with anyone. But I think with him and Cameron Diaz in this movie, they're both so energetic and spunky, and they both know exactly what kind of movie they're in. That their energies. I don't know if they have the right kind of sexual chemistry, but they just have the right kind of energetic chemistry. Mm. That I think it it's passable for sure. He gave good look when he walked up to yeah. kiss her. Yeah, that was in that a moment? that was a good moment because it was definitely yeah. again like the the look. I I want to make sure that it's clear. Like the look is not lascivious. The right. look is meant to be tender and kind of like oh you. You'll have to you'll have to think of who who gives good look. Who like what what, what would be your definition textbook like? In the textbook version of rom-coms in the chapter called The Look, who would the textbook picture be? What, what moment would that be? Oh, God, no. I, I need to do some research on that. There is a really amazing Twitter thread where it's like people just added to the thread over and over sure. all these GIF examples of guys giving The Look and doing it really well. Um, I think... Honestly, and this is before you even said it for this podcast, I think Angelina Jolie in uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, there's a scene where she thinks Brad Pitt has left and she's all alone and it was just a one night stand. But -hmm. then he comes in with breakfast or the newspaper or something and she like gives him this look that's like, oh, you came back. And I think like that's the moment that they fell in love right there on screen. Like it's such a great look. But that's a girl or not a girl, but that's a woman giving a man a look. But I'm a man, so I'm probably more receptive to that. Right, right. So I'm curious as to, like, what would the man version of that be? What is the man version of that? I mean, I, I definitely some of the, the giants of, of the rom-com genre, like Tom Hanks is, is you know, he's, he's okay. great at giving the look. Um, I'm trying to think who else gives good look. Uh, I have to, I'll have to come back yeah. to you on that. Um, certainly, I think Matthew Good gives good look. Uh, and I think that Tom Cruise gives good look when it comes to night and day. I mean, it's not like like heat, like the the heat's not necessarily right. there, but he's he's doing it. Um, I think that he gives way better murder look. Oh yeah, his his murder his psychopathic. <laughs> his murder cold eyes. Murder stare, yeah. Heart eyes, okay. Murder eyes, a plus. <laughs> For sure, I hundred uh, percent agree. <laughs> So, are you ready for Love Bites? I'm ready for Love Bites. What do you yeah. have to recommend this week? Uh, well, Sonia's been on a uh, sports night kick. Okay. Which means I've been on a sports night kick. Aaron Sorkin, Aaron yes. Sorkin. So, to tie it all together, A Few Good Men. Oh. Yeah, I recently rewatched that movie this week just for Tom Cruisiness and Aaron Sorkininess, just to have it all come Could together. Could you handle the truth? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I handled that truth. Uh, ooh, that sounded dirty. <laughs> um, it is a great movie. That movie, uh, Interview with a Vampire, may not hold up for me, but that movie is a classic. It's so well done. Um, it's a little bit long, maybe, but I, just the cast, the deliveries, the lines, the everything. And it's not very sorkin Whereas I think Sports Night may be Sorkin at his most Sorkin-y. Oh yeah, he's hit peak Sorkin. Yeah, like there are some there are some scenes in Sports Night where I cannot. I mean, I love it, but at the same time, I cannot help but groan and eye roll at just the level of Sorkin in that show. Um, the way he writes female characters sometimes pisses me off because, like, I. I love belligerent sexual tension. I love characters who are attracted to each other and then they also bicker at the same time. And so does Aaron Sorkin. Right. But then like the way like he writes the female characters sometimes like there's something about it that annoys me like like especially when it's like yeah I'm a tough talking female and I'm not going to take any of your shit anymore. Like, Well, the big thing is the fe- the female characters are always put in a position where they do something wrong, but then they always want to be held accountable for what they did wrong instead of given a second chance where they're like, no, be mad at me. Yell at me. I take my job seriously. It's, and that, I, I don't know. That kind of gets to me. I don't know yeah. what it is about that that right. bothers me. Um, but but yeah, I I it's funny that you brought up a few good men because I feel like I'm having like a Bader Meinhof syndrome thing, like Bader Meinhof syndrome being like you hear of a concept oh, or yeah. something and then it starts appearing everywhere. Right. It started when uh, I was in Dallas and one of my friends asked uh, us what our top three favorite lawyer movies are yeah, because they're good lawyers. Lawyer movie. Uh, yeah. And then a few good men came up in the conversation. And then after that conversation, I feel like I've had at least two other conversations since then. And right. now where a few good men has come up. Wow. So maybe the universe is telling me I need to watch it. Have you ever seen it? I've never seen it. I mean, Ooh, I know. I, good movie. The, the famous scene is known right. to everyone. Right. Um, but no, I, I haven't actually seen it. Yeah, it's a super solid movie. I highly recommend it. Yeah, no, I, I have to check that one out. Uh, so for my love bite, uh, after watching Night and Day and being so charmed by uh, Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz uh, working together... It had me thinking about co-op gaming, which is something that I enjoy doing with my partner. We like to play games together. And there's one franchise that I think is really well suited for playing with your significant other or best friend. Uh, Not everybody's in a relationship, but Borderlands. I think that the Borderlands series is a first-person shooter it's a really great couch co-op plan, pan, let, couch co-op game, not a plan. <laughs> it's it exists. the The plan is finished, uh, and I think that Borderlands Two is the best one. We're playing Borderlands Three right now, and I mean, I, I could go on and on about why I think Two is better, 
but the franchise in general is just so good for co-op gaming. There's different character classes, so if you feel like you're more of like a range player, you don't want to go right into the fray, you can choose a character class that works for you. Also, I know a lot of women who play video games who say things like, and I used to be part of this camp as well, where it's like, oh, I don't like first person shooters. Oh, yeah. um, I can do third person shooters or, or I like this type of game, but first person shooters are, are not, I'm not good at them. And I would say that um, Borderlands, I would count that as an exception because it's not an FPS like uh, Call of Duty or Battlefield where you're playing with a bunch of 10-year-olds that are way better than you at video games because their brains are still growing. Uh, Borderlands, it has a campaign mode, a story where you and your significant other or friend can play together. And then it's also a really funny game. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't try to be super realistic. Like, it takes place in this sort of post-apocalyptic galactic wasteland so all the enemies you shoot are crazy people basically and they all say really funny things and then it's it's a animated or or um stylized in a way where it isn't trying to look super realistic like the way how call of duty's like yeah we want right. to really make it look like this is like what it's like it's cell shaded right yeah it's cell yeah. it's cell shaded um there's tons of female characters the female characters actually get to do things uh and yeah it's just like if if you've ever wanted to like play a game with your significant other where you shoot bad guys together, Borderlands is a really great one, and then it's super easy to learn uh, if you don't usually get into first-person shooters. Gotcha. Have you ever played Portal 2? I love Portal 2, and I love Portal 2 co-op, but... Uh, Portal 2 co-op is probably one of my favorite co-op experiences. That's a great game to play with a best friend or significant other. That said... I definitely got into Portal 2 related arguments with my significant other. So I I feel like it is a little, yeah. Like Borderlands won't test your relationship. (laughs) Portal 2 will absolutely test your relationship. I think it's a best friend game because I played it with my best friend and he had already played it once. So there was a little bit of like, he kind of let me figure out most of it, but he kind of was like trying to remember (laughs) some of it and. It was just really cool to like once, you know, portals that one of those games are like once it clicks and you're like, oh, if I put this portal here and shoot this thing here, then I can do this. And and then you add the two player aspect to it. And it is oh, what a fun game. Yeah. No, yeah. that one, it, like that can be a, a secondary recommendation from right. both of us. For like, sure. Yeah. Portal 2. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I had so much fun playing Portal 2. When are they going to come out with another co-op well, portal? No, uh, <laughs> Valve, right, is pretty famous for never coming out with a third. Oh, is that their That's thing? A, yeah, Half-Life 3 never came out. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Valve! Lucas! How, how dare you, Valve! <laughs> All right, well, we can we can end on that note, cursing Valve. Right. <laughs> As Damn. you do. Damn you, Valve! <laughs>
Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.